Welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. And I'm Philip. And this week we're taking a look at a special hot new entry on the list. It's Quentin Tarantino's 2019-1969 set. Is it a drama? Is it a historical film? What is it? It's not really technically a 1990. Movie. <laughs> no, it is not at all a 1999 movie. No, we're, bre- we're breaking the uh, we're breaking the pattern. Yeah. We are breaking up the summer of 1999, but don't worry, we'll be back next week. 1999 some... is the midpoint. <laughs> yeah, oh, the, the gap between. The... I'm not entirely sure no, that's accurate that's either. Not, that's no, not true no, either. that's not no. true. That's Pulp Fiction is the midpoint between the 1969, appropriately enough. Um, but what we did is we decided to ask Phil on to talk about this uh, mm. movie because I'd seen the movie with Phil. And Phil seemed to, to really you did. like we, it. We, we had a fun time, Darren, and thank you. I hope we get to do it again sometime. Well, we did get to do it again. We went to see it twice. Yeah, um, we did. Research. How research we done? Um, but yes, so Quentin Tarantino's 2019 Once oh, yeah, Upon a Time that, in Hollywood. You hadn't said the title yet. Yes, uh, which is a... It's a, a drama that unfolds over a period of several days in early February 1969 and offers a snapshot of Los Angeles kind of as it was at that time. It's Tarantino's ninth film. By all accounts, or by his account at least, it's his penultimate film. So he says, but, yeah. you know, I believe Tarantino's his... Tarantino's ninth. Yeah. <laughs> What's it nice. calling? But there wasn't a, there, a there wasn't a Beethoven's tenth. Yeah. So, um, yeah. maybe I, this I think, is his last one. I think maybe we, that was the mi- mi- mistake. He's not Beethoven. saying that he's Can going we... to make ten. <laughs> <laughs> he's setting himself up for fall. Well, no, maybe he was just going for one better than Beethoven. Well, you know the rumor is that his tenth film is going to be a Star Trek film. Who's going to give him the money for that? Paramount, apparently. Yeah, fair enough. Paramount, the, the company that gave you monster trucks. Yeah, I suppose they'll do that. Um, I believe Tarantino's... It, an, uh, it, one, of, one of the execs' uh, sons. It's like, yeah. I want a really sweary Star Trek. And it's like, well, my oh, son asked yeah. for it. Yeah. All um, I know is that I believe Tarantino's uh, uh, retirement announcements, like I do Soderbergh's or Daniel Day-Lewis's. Yeah, like he'll make more. He'll make them as long as he keeps getting the money for it. That's it. And he's already started sort of. He's he's hemmed and hawed, and he said, "Well, if I direct for television, or maybe I can do a franchise film, and it won't count." Or he's done, and I mean, he's done it before, though. Even even in terms of counting his ten, he doesn't count Kill Bill as two separate movies. I know he shot them together and planned to release them together, but again, even within this, that, you have a bit of gerrymandering going on. This sounds on. a bit like the debate about uh, that Pixar had with Disney over the Toy Stories. Is each one an individual movie? Yeah, yeah, and they'd worked just yeah. fine. Uh, I wish I could say the same for Kill Bill, but yeah. that's a that's a different podcast. Yes, we'll indeed. be getting around to that eventually. <laughs> the, uh, um, the the, the uh, film where it's like a whole lot of hotel rooms, four um, rooms, yes. four rooms. That, that doesn't count. That does not. Count. Nor no, he does only direct, re- he only directed a quarter of it. Yeah. Nor does his stint on his directing an episode of Eeyore. Nor does his television movie Buried Alive for CSI, which I recommend is actually really worth seeking out. You can tell it's a Quentin Tarantino film because there's a sequence in which they have Tony Bennett playing cards uh, while talking about old Hollywood. That's how you know that it's a Quentin Tarantino production. (laughs) Um, Tony Bennett? How'd they get Tony Bennett? Quentin Tarantino, I suspect. But the idea is that it's Mark Helgenberger's character's father and he's hanging out with all these 60s stars. And he's played by Tony Bennett. No, no, no. It's actually Tony Bennett playing Tony Bennett. And it's Tony Curtis as well playing Tony Curtis. What? The idea is they're all all old Hollywood stars sitting around playing cards with one another. In CSI, yeah. I have got to see this. It's very worth seeking out. I would wholeheartedly recommend it. Um... (laughs) 
But yeah, let's let's talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because this if is we must. what if we must at all because this <laughs> is a movie. Obviously, it's a Tarantino movie. It's been gestating for a while. He originally planned to release this as a novel. He'd been working on this for a couple of years as a novel. Now, this is not stills for this. They're like, oh, <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh, look at this. It was like a punchline. On... Oh, the, the photos of yes, yeah. Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio in their leather jackets sort yeah, of standing yeah. opposite each other. Well, this, this is the thing. Tarantino originally wanted to do this like a novel. It's not the first project that began like this. Hateful Eight. He had originally envisaged Hateful Eight as a uh, novel spin-off of Django, a tie-in novel of Django. And I've the idea was... That. Yeah. But... The, um, I don't know. Tarantino doing a novel. I mean, the, his dialogue alone would probably be like a, another Norman Mailer doorstop. A massive thing. 900 pages. 600 of which are just people talking about soda. Would they be graphic novel? No. They'd be no. very graphic. Well, yeah, they would be very graphic. Well, he is credited on um, Django... Um, was it Django Zorro? Which is the Vertigo comic. Django Zorro. Yep, yeah, which he may apparently be adapting or at least writing the screenplay for the cinematic adaptation of as well. So, like, again, Tarantino has this sort of, you know, tendency to, to branch if, out. If he retires from directing, he won't stop writing. And that, some some great work has been made out of scripts that he didn't direct himself. Yeah, like True Romance is probably the big one as well. And I mean, uh, you Crimson Tide Natural as well, I like. Yeah. Although he yeah. ended dialogue wash there, but yeah. Well, you can tell that the parts <laughs> where it's um, mm. Tarantino. It's like that, that Suddenly we're talking about the Silver it. Surfer in the yeah. submarine. Why? Exactly. Who cares? It's cool. They're just stopping to have this argument about who... Which... We'll get through it. We'll sh- we'll get through this scene because in a minute we'll get back to Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington shouting at each other. And I want more of that. Mm. Um, but yeah, so basically Once Upon a Time, originally he planned to write it as a novel, but it came out in its own sort of true form eventually. It is an interesting film in many respects, but what's particularly interesting is how successful it's been. Mm. It will be only the second original, like, non-franchise-derived uh, intellectual property movie to pass $100 million at the US box office. Uh, the other one being Jordan Peele's Us, which is kind of a sorry state of the industry well, that we're in. Is that this year? Yeah, yeah. Us was earlier oh, this year. Oh, right. Yeah, um, the, the, like, even for blockbusters, though, it's been kind of... It has, but, I mean, Disney became the first studio to have five $1 billion hits within the space of a single year. But well, considering the properties that they made that with, it's not surprising. Like, they yeah. set themselves up for that. And they got five so far. Five, five so far, they're going to have, have seven. Yeah, They'll have seven. Frozen 2 and Aladdin, Star, Wars. Star Wars. Aladdin, Lion King. Yeah. Um, uh, Endgame, uh, Captain Marvel, um, and Toy oh, Story 4. Toy, yeah, because ah. all those count. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Because so Disney own everything. D- the mouse owns everything. Yeah, I mean, the hell with the mouse. What's notable, though, is that, like, two months ago, it had been predicted that Disney would make a $9 billion at the American box office. But when you have seven $1 billion films, that's a troubling statistic. Particularly mm-hmm. when one of those is going to hit $2 billion safely. Another one's probably going to hit $1.6, $1.7. So it is... A worrying state of cinema where we are. And it really is. I'm. This is genuinely concerning. Yeah. They're, they're what's monopoly, concerning? The monopolization of the box office by Disney. Well, the fact that it's so dominated by these tentacles that, like, you only have two movies this year that are outside of that that yeah. have made over than a hundred million. Cin- cinemas have um, cinemas have, have have a lot of screens. Yeah. 
So there's kind of like there there's there's people people can 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 still watch different movies. Well, that and, was, and there's much more video on demand. Well, that was that was the original plan with multiplexes. And Amazon and um, uh, Netflix. So well, like, is is it is it that much of a problem? Well, the original plan in the '90s was that when you had multiplexes, you would build multiplexes so you could screen every movie that was in release at the moment. Yeah. Right. What happened was that in practice, uh, in America at least, and I suspect over here, one showing two D, one showing three D. Well, once every fifteen minutes. And once yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Like they have the same movie starting once every 15 minutes but you're right video on demand is doing very well netflix is doing very well and like again you know you have cinema purists who are like the death of cinema and i think that's something to be concerned about but you have people who is are trying new things i think it is i think I, so I, you know like, like, like i mean when 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 have people ever not said oh, oh this is the death of cinema and it's like oh they're, oh they're only interested in talkies these days everything has to be a talkie and what's this color why is everything <laughs> yeah. in color Black and white was good enough for me. Yeah, what, what, what was what was wrong? Oh, people people just don't get movies anymore where you where you don't talk. The or, issue is or the, have it in black and white. I suppose the issue is the usual problem of the future being unwritten. Dull. Yeah. But it's just the basic idea of like Disney. They have everything like the other studios, and I know it's it's hard to maybe feel kind of sympathy or kind of concern maybe about these massive entities, but. They're getting muscled out. Like, Columbia have put this out. And what other output have they had this year? Um, is it Spider-Man, I think, is their only other... Uh, Which hit a billion, hit? to be fair. To be fair, but that's one billion. Again, Disney are going to hit nine. Mm. But no, I'm like, and this is the thing where I, I kind of, I see both sides of it. I oh, by the way, guys, if, if if you like if you like food noises, we're, there's going to be lots of food noises. Noise. Food noises. Oh yeah, if you want to get us chewing, it's going to be ASMR Central. Um, but yeah, no, I, I see both sides of this. Like I, I do worry about the state of cinema as it exists today. I also understand that the future is unwritten, and that like things like Netflix are great. Things like you know streaming video on demand services are great. I, I'm you know I'm anxious about like how that market's going to fragment and stuff like that. But I'm not a naysayer. I'm not sort of standing here shaking my fist at the sky, going this is the end of everything. But at the same time, it's interesting in the context of this movie, which is ostensibly, and I suspect we'll go into a great deal of detail about it, a love letter to 1969. But watching it, for me, it also felt a little bit like a love letter to, like, the 90s. A love letter to Tarantino's own sort of coming of age. And you can see that in, like, it's notably, it's the first collaboration of uh, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio mm. in a full feature-length theatrical film. They previously appeared in Martin Scorsese's short The Audition right. with Robert De Niro. And we'll see if we can include that in the show notes if you're curious and want to check that out. Um, but, like, when we recorded Heat, um, and Phil was there as well, yeah. we discussed, like... The thing about Heat was that it felt like it was maybe the last time that you could get away with having a movie that was premised on what two about stars. these two big movie stars who are really cool and hang out together. And you're know, sort of like seeing them together on screen for the first time being an event. Right. Yeah. And like what's interesting about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that it feels almost like that. It's like getting Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt together, two children of the 90s, hmm. um, and having them on screen together for the first time playing opposite one another. It's... Almost, it kind of reminds me a bit of that sort of style of cinema of the 90s, the way that you make movies back then as opposed to now. Yeah. It didn't feel very um, uh, much like like Heat, or, or like, oh. like like the movie was trying to um, kind of make a um, show. No, of, it certainly of, didn't. Of the stariness of, 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 of the actors. Like, there wasn't a moment, it didn't feel to me like there was a moment where, like, oh my God, it's, it's Brad Pitt. Well, and Leonardo DiCaprio. Well, finally, I'd have two things to say on that. I, firstly, um, 
they're n- it's not the same as in Heat, where the two stars are separated for opposed, most yeah. of the yeah. film. Yeah, uh, but and is, they're but just opposed. Yeah, these are two are together constantly, and they're very you know they're two. Well, I suppose they're two sides of the same coin in much the same way, but at the same time, it's not they're not opposed to one another. They're having a lot of the same problems, just yeah. different reactions to it. Well, I mean, not to get too spoilery and just to talk in vague terms, it is, at least, and again, this is this is me. I'm willing to accept I'm in the minority here and I may not be have the correct read on it. But one thing that struck me watching it is how the roles in question, I'm going to talk very generally about this because we're not in the spoiler zone yet, but say Rick Dalton, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and Cliff Booth, who's played by uh, Brad Pitt, how those two characters, and it's weird because... Tarantino apparently met with Cruz. Apparently Tarantino... Tom Cruise. T- apparently Tarantino had three actors in consideration for these two roles. Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Tom Cruise. Um, and he had no idea which way it was going to work out until he actually cast it. And that, make, that makes sense because they are among the very few movie star names that would be... Um, that are marquee names now. Yeah. Like, it'd be I, them, Will Smith maybe, Denzel Washington, Tom okay. Hanks... I'd be interested to see actually if if Tom Cruise is like yeah this is great I'm I'm gonna be um so this um kind of uh, stuntman guy is kind of like, <laughs> yes, um, uh, no <laughs> we kind of imagine you more as the neurotic movie star Tom um, <laughs> but like th- that's the thing is that the way those roles are written and again I, I acknowledge that because the way it was cast because the way it, like it doesn't seem to have been written specifically for those people it seems like he you know had a net and he got these two for these roles. But like the so, way that Dalton Dalton plays to DiCaprio's strengths as an actor, in that it's it's very much plays to kind of how DiCaprio tends to play roles, where there's this this intense pros, intensity, a bit cagey. yeah, this sort of almost insecurity in there, this sort of rattling, sort of sorry, like commitment. One, one I'm just thinking of that um, that uh, Rich Hall bit about. So I'm a stuntman, pretty good stuntman. <laughs> <laughs> one day I have a crisis of confidence. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Until a woman comes along. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll talk about that in a moment. I suspect I'll have a lot to say about that. Um, so we surmise Tarantino's a rich hole. Yeah. No problem with that. But, um, yes. So, But uh, it is. And then, obviously, Cliff Booth is plays more to Pitt's strengths. Where Pitt, has, Pitt as an actor has this sort of, like, easy-go-lucky... charismatic. Tra- yeah, like, I mean, when Pitt shows up in 12 Years a Slave, he's, you know... Basically, Jesus. He's a carpenter who comes all around and offers salvation. <laughs> he's but of, he's very relaxed in the context of a movie that has, to that point, been incredibly brutal. He's also got one of the few jarring points of 12 Years a Slave. It's like, yeah. brutality, brutality, intensity, brutality, intensity, intensity. Brad Pitt! Yeah, and he's pretty cool. Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah. I quite like Phil Bagnell's 12 Years a Slave um, I look forward to the remix of this appearing <laughs> very soon um, uh, although ironically that's the film for which Brad Pitt won his Oscars so go figure yeah um, but yeah so no that, that's the that's the kind of thing and it does feel like it kind of harks back to that sort of 90s style of production yeah. and that 90s style of filmmaking back when it, we still had stars god yeah, damn that, it that sort of thing and it feels kind of nostalgic for that era as much as it, not as much as it does but for that, 1969 that's mm. kind of that that fits with with it it being um if it, it it fits with the movie like like as in it's weird to think of kind of it's Hollywood um, you kind of have to have stars Brad Pitt and and, and Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio being kind of our um 
sort of era's version of kind of what Al Pacino what Mark and Hudson or Dean Martin. Yeah. No, no, oh, it would have would, would, would been in the no, no. I'm saying in in the kind of late sixties mm. when when um, the studios were still thinking that kind of um, you know the, these these old sort of like fifties actors were 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 the ones that they needed. Where so in movies, yeah, where yeah, yeah, where 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 sixty seven was kind of um, the 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 turning point. Yeah, I guess where you had like um, um, uh, do. Bonnie and Clyde. And yeah, the graduate uh, and Bonnie yeah. and Clyde, and and they were going up against what was it, um, Doctor Doodle? Yeah, yeah. For, yeah. For, for the Oscar. Yeah, yeah. Which again gives you a sense of how Hollywood was stuck there at the time, yeah. Yeah. and even in the context of this, you have like you do have a sequence that features Dean Martin and underscores kind of yeah how yeah. awkward Dean Martin felt in the context of 1969 in cinema. Yeah, like this feels like a. This almost feels antiquated in the way that Pulp Fiction almost felt like the disruptor that it was in the 90s. Even though it's the same, like, it's the same kind of idea. These massive starry casts in this film that's kind of sticking out on its own. Whereas this is more of a an antiquated outlier as opposed to Pulp Fiction, which was the new kid on the block. A harbinger the of things to come. Yeah. There stars from 20 years ago, though. So, like, we probably think of the... Um, them as as still being kind of like the relevant or, yeah, yeah, sort yeah. Of like or reflective and so well like. they're not irrelevant i mean they still no. sell oh yeah no, no, absolutely yeah. Well, but, but 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 the the whole kind of the whole idea of star power has kind of like gone away these are the stars who uh, exist from a time where it was yeah. stars with the selling point now yeah, it's franchises yeah. and concept oh, it's not even concepts it's just franchise. intellectual property yeah that's it exactly and again like as you have that big hollywood reporter piece about dicaprio that came out around the time of the film which was dicaprio as the last movie star and you get a lot of a lot of like agents in hollywood talking about him almost waxing lyrical nostalgically it's like i would love to have my client work in a dicaprio film you know it would be mm. like because that's you know dicaprio puts artists first and he represents a sort of an older style of hollywood and so it's interesting how that kind of the film feels nostalgic you know, in the context of being a nostalgia piece, but not for the era it's directly evoking, but more for the oh, association. It's, 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 yeah. well, it's evoking kind of both. That it's not, that, it, that, it, that it's not um, uh, evoking. Uh, oh, 1969. Yes, it absolutely is. Because yes. you, were, you, were, you were saying there, this is a nostalgia piece, but not for the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> okay, as well as for the 60s. It can, it can be several things. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to ask three questions before we jump into the spoilers, huh? just to kick us off. So first question is, Phil, Yeah. do you think that this movie belongs on a list of the 250 best movies of all time as voted for by MDB users. Okay. Um, I have to say, I really like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I had a blast with it. I think it's clever. I think it's gorgeously made. But one of the best ever made? Oh, good heavens, no. And I mean, the 250 already has a, a surfeit of Tarantino. What, five, seven films. Seven. You, you don't like Django either. Do I'm you? the... I, it's... Yeah, I have big issues with Django. Um, uh, hang on. Seven? Yeah. So let's see. Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, this, yes. Django, and Glorious Bastards, yeah. Kill Bill Volume 1. Yeah. Okay, maybe it's six. That's still far too many. One's enough. And it used, should... to be, it used to include Grindhouse and it used to include Kill Bill Volume 2 as well. Oh, blimey. No. Um... The Hateful Eight and Jackie Brown are the only Tarantino movies not to have made the list at right. any point. Uh, well, that, uh, Jackie Brown is wonderful. I rewatched it after rewatching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, Jackie but... Brown's the one that everybody who's seen kind of every... 
Tarantino, Tarantino movie would say, oh yeah, no, no, check this out, check out Jackie Brown. It's, it's his most successful film still. Yeah. His best, I'm sorry, it's a cliche, but it's Pulp Fiction. Um, but yeah, does this belong to the 250? No. That's right. my answer. And Andrew? Um, I'd, 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 be, I'd be kind of uncertain. I, 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 may, I, may, I may have the issue with there being kind of six and... Um, um, I feel I feel like I would rate this ahead of Inglorious Bastards, but behind uh, uh, Django Unchained, which is which is which is maybe um, and and just because even even uh, there were there were I think go back to the Inglorious Bastards um, episode. Go back there to were, the there Bastards. Were, there were there were there were things about that 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 weren't kind of like um, you know uh, perfect. Yeah. I can't think of that much in in this movie that I could um, uh, that I could fault. I think some of the things that people have faulted with the movie um, felt um, kind of interesting or appropriate yeah. in um, in ways. Well, I mean, we're going to have to talk about that when we get to the spoiler zone. So like, I think yeah. there's a lot to unpack here. Um, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I personally. I really like this movie. It's going to be in my top 10 of the year I guess fairly I said, highly. I don't know. If Inglorious Bastards is going to be in the 250, then... Might then, as well. Then this, yeah. then this ought to. Um, I would probably... I'd probably agree more with Phil. I'm not entirely sure it belongs on the list. I do think it's, it's great. I really, really liked it. It's one of my films of the year. I really, really love it. I do have some issues with it that I'm not entirely sure I've worked out. I don't think that's a bad thing. It's a film that I'm kind of still turning over in my head. I've seen it three times. And um, you're still working it out. I'm still working yeah, which I, is remarkable. It and is. Yeah. I mean, it, this is a film that I think you put it quite nicely. We were discussing it and you said it doesn't come pre-tuned. Yeah. It's, there's a lot here to think about. Yeah, it was... Which feels increasingly rare. Well, that's it. It was uh, <laughs> untuned. Rare. Um, I don't know. We know how you like your Mozo and Frank's sake. But yeah, the... <laughs> yeah, because it, it's, it's important for audiences to be told, like, oh, this is a movie for you. Yeah, this this movie feels kind of the same way... Every as Tarantino you, as you do As you do about things. Yeah. It's okay. Um, <laughs> you don't have to watch the bad things. You can watch this. This is good. This is... Th- this will uphold all your morals. Well, okay, but I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of of Emily Vanderwerf's observation. She wrote about this uh, during the week, and her observation was that she, a lot of modern cinema feels very didactic in terms of like yeah. outlining clearly how not only how it wants the audience to feel about things, but how it personally feels about things. It's it's like it's on a quest to be liked. A lot of films, they're like yeah. they're like they have to uh, align themselves with what they think the audience thinks, but. You know, audiences used to complain that critics are a hive mind. Have filmmakers suddenly thought, well, everyone's a hive mind. We're all thinking the same. Hence, I'm going to make my film uh, think the way they think, which is just Well, everybody stupid. is missing a family. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> it. So, yeah. so, <laughs> so all our films are about family. Um, yeah. And people like Corona, right? Family is important. Uh, yeah. I agree. <laughs> well, that, that's it. Like, part of me wonders if the... Like, I'm the sorry, but unless you're Arrested Development, don't sell me that bull hockey. <laughs> but no, I, I, again, like, we, we talked about this on Guards of the Galaxy, where, I, like, I suspect the reason most films or most big blockbusters are about family, inverted commas, is because family is safe and unpolitical and uncontroversial and unchallenging. And everybody likes family, right? Everybody wants a family in some description, whether yeah. it's a founder or biological one. Like so it's family, Jesus. Yeah, it's very accessible and stuff like that. And, like, Vanderwerf made the point, and it's... 
I wonder if she's maybe reaching a little bit. Part of me is like, I see, I think I see the point that she's making. Where it's like the decline of stuff like religion, organized religion um, in American life. And how do we expect pop culture to fill that void, morally speaking? So do we expect movies God to is offer? dead. <laughs> we have killed him. But that was the challenge. Um, and he's, So uh, God is dead that, and he's being replaced that, by Mickey Mouse. That Nietzsche oh kind of threw down. Was like, did it, did it, it wasn't kind of um, this... Um, uh, uh, Proclamation. Th- yeah, yeah. And... and and that everything has uh, changed, and th- these this is how things are going to be from now on. It was a question. Yeah. It was kind of well, how 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 are you? What are you going to do now that you've um uh, now that you haven't placed God at the center? Yeah. And so there's a question of like, is pop culture <laughs> family? That's Corona. Gonna, yeah. Um, is that like is do we expect modern film to do that? And like one of the things that I like about this movie is that while I'm still turning it over in my head. I don't know what the movie thinks about the things that it's dealing with. I don't necessarily even like searing it on each side. Yeah, so it's not <laughs> turning it over in your head. Yeah. yeah, so that it's rare in the middle. But it is. It it deals with big things. It's and again, it's a very personal movie, which is odd on the it's scale in, that it's on. It's intensely personal. And it's and personal film that kind of level of personalness. What am I looking for here? What's the word I'm looking for? Personality? Personality. Yeah. No, but Tarantino doesn't make films that personal. This is easily his warmest and I have to say most accessible film since Jackie Brown. And I think as time passes and he's watching the Hollywood system change, um, I think he's getting very nostalgic and very wistful and he's had pause for thought and it's really bled into the script for this thing. And and I think some something we should mention as well is that this movie is this movie is a lot of fun. Yes, yeah, immensely so. It's, yeah, it's a it's, it's a hangout it's, movie. It's, yes, that's yeah. exactly. It's yeah. so laid back. Yeah, well, is for the rollicking? most part, <laughs> rollicking. <laughs> is this like your romp? Ki- your Kill Bill volume two? Your roaring critics, rampage. Critics revenge. called it a romping, rollicking rampage. I romped and I rollicked <laughs> and, and I, I bloody satisfaction. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it is. It absolutely is. So I have no objection to it being on the list. I'm kind of glad that it is so we can talk about it. I'm really looking forward to talking about it with you guys. I'm not sure. We're it... going to give you the answers, Darren. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, it's not. The answers aren't worth anything. The questions that are where the value's at. But I mean, I do think so. It's, it's good to have it on that respect. I'm but not sure. But, but we have to have answers in this modern day and age. I need my positions validated. But you, you sound like the um, the guy who's like, yo, what, what, all of a sudden all the kids want trophies. Uh. Yeah, I, 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 I thought I was coming across a bit more like Cartman there, to be honest. Big man, I had to hit my I political love, opinion. I love like that. That's, that's like twenty first century Rodney Dangerfield is how Andrew framed that. No kids respect. These days, what trophies? Trophy. They want um, this. They want that. No respect. But um, yeah. I'm doing a lot of impersonations here today and none of them good. In terms of like, because you guys have both did it, done it as well, Tarantino rankings, this would probably be in kind of the lower mid-tier. And I, I, I have lower this... Mid-tier. There's only 10 of the Tarantino. I don't know my impressions are Rodney Dangerfield to you, by the way. I don't, I don't I've listened whether... to some of them. <laughs> they were good. They didn't <laughs> all sound like Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> Listen back to previous episodes, folks. You'll um, be the judge. But um, yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> But yeah, so basically what I was saying was that... Uh, that, that's Sylvester Stallone. 
It was a little bit Rodney Dangerfield, but mostly it was Sylvester Um But anyway, as I was saying, um, in terms of ranking, because I, I, I tried to rank Tarantino during the week just to see if I could do it. Yeah. And I found what happened is I just put him in like three blobs. So, you know, down the bottom there's Death Proof. That, that, like, <laughs> a blob of its own. A blob of its own. That's one, isn't it? I, no, no, that's the bottom. That's the worst. I've never I know, actually... as, as in that, that's on the list. Yeah, no, that's... Is that one of the nine? No, it's it's one of the nine, and it was on the IMDb list as part of Grindhouse. Oh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, 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 I would have been wondering, kind of like which of and Grindhouse is another. Grind, no, Grindhouse Death Proof is half of Grindhouse. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, it's it's Planet Robert Terror. Rodriguez and Planet Terror. And... Turn around, Darren has a framed poster of the damn thing on the wall. He does. He does. Yeah. So, you know, Death Proof would be on its own in the bottom blob. And then you have the, the kind of the lower tier blob, which includes films like this and Jackie Brown, controversially. I the variable Kent is like, oh, um, I was in uh, Brazil <laughs> um, with uh, uh, the... Uh, looking at the wall. <laughs> trying to piece together a narrative. Uh, it was a real planet terror down there, but it's okay because I had a Death Proof car. Um on the, it was around the time of the dawn <laughs> in, of the. In, in that version of Usual Suspect, you <laughs> very quickly be, figured out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, you're the villain. Yeah, you're making all of this up. But and like uh, that, we're gone. <laughs> but yeah, so um, this would be kind of in that tier. It's not top tier for me. It's not the best of Tarantino stuff. Although again, I accept I'm in the minority, and that I absolutely, absolutely love, say, the Hateful Eight. Right. I think the Hateful Eight. Yeah, yeah you're be, you're someone. I'm that guy. Yeah. Um, but it's going to be one of my top ten films of the decade. This isn't quite that for me. There's a real consensus about the hateful <laughs> being <laughs> terrible. Not being good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. And here I am staking out my little flag. No, no, you do that. You do you. Um, all right, then. So second question is, would it be on your own personal list of your favorite 250 movies, Phil? Uh, oh, uh, I don't know. But I will say this. I will gladly rewatch it. Uh, lately, I found myself rewatching. Uh, and I suppose it's quite apt, really. Uh, I found myself rewatching Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, which is a film I love more every that, time I see it. Is that movie as mumbly as as I? Is it uh, as mumbly as us? No, like watching the movie, I I I I, I enjoyed it, but there were, there were large parts of it where it's like, am I meant to hear? Well, this is what kind of what. Saying? But this is kind of the point I was going to get to because it's a film that is so laid back. There are times where you know you get like Owen Wilson, Joaquin Phoenix, and they're talking about all kinds of stuff. I mean, wow! But it's all very low key and whispery, and these are the points where you can actually tune out. Am I loud enough? Um, the point is. That it doesn't matter. You can kind of zone out. And I felt like watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there were moments where I feel like I could just relax. If the characters want to talk about whatever, it's cool. You carry on the conversation. I'm just going to settle into my into my chair here in the cinema. It's really comfortable. I'm like, I'm really mellow here. And yeah, I enjoyed I, it on that level. And I will gladly rewatch it. So whether it'll, it's a film that might appreciate with me. We'll yeah. see. It's not as yappy as uh, uh, Tarantino movies normally are. Like I, I quite, there's a lot of I, yap though. I quite like um, Tarantino dialogue, but the, but there there as Darren says, there are lacunas. I think, <laughs> and, yeah, and, and people people have complained. I think about uh, about Margot Robbie's kind of uh, lack of speaking, yeah, the amount yeah. of lines, the counting the lines. I'm sorry. Since when was a character's number of lines equal to their validity? Yeah. What is this nonsense? Yeah, I mean, to, again, you could argue it maybe. I smell some that, hypothesis rejection. Yeah. But <laughs> thank you, Mister Tarantino. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just, 
yeah, just I've watched that moment at, from Cannes. I thought, wow, um, somebody's actually really pissed. Yeah. Well, Tarantino has not a, like Tarantino. I know Tarantino is <laughs> normally so guarded and sort yeah, of careful yeah. in his responses. He's just but like, the, well, I really respect you as a journalist. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to answer that directly. No, it's I mean, it's like, like, I'm like, shutting you down. You? Yeah. What the hell is wrong with? I, why are you asking me this, you idiot? Well, there's the yeah, the wonderful was it Martin Bashir? He was like, I'm shutting you down. Yeah. Uh, oh no, he, it was um, uh, Christian Guramurthy. Ah, apologies. Yeah. Um, and I mean, even things like the I am God. Um, which is a very Tarantino proclamation. Oh, somebody asked him, there's a story about somebody asking him for an autograph when he was going into an Alamo screening to introduce one of his movies. And his response was, you wouldn't ask God for an autograph before you went into church, would you? Um, which is, um, like, again, Look, I have, I, considering the influence can't. he's had on movies. <laughs> like, like, no. If I, if I was about to go into church and God were there, if like, not, I wouldn't just uh, say, uh, just... Ignore God and um, avoid so eye contact. I'll just give God uh, uh, God's privacy there and <laughs> go into the church where I'm going to worship Him. As somebody, <laughs> get, as somebody who gets really starstruck at times, I find that hard to imagine. But at the same time, it, I've, given the influence he's had on movies over the last thirty years, I'm not surprised that, that Tarantino could completely disappear his, his own ego like that. Oh yeah. I mean, I, the, we talked about the irony on the, on the Twin Peaks podcast of, like, Tarantino coming out of Firewalk with me and saying, let me know when David Lynch emerges from his own asshole. <laughs> um, and I mean, like, and I love both of them. I'm oh, actually I'm a big God. fan of both. Well, so not- like, yeah, but Tarantino did disappear up his ass several times, I think, yeah. in some of his later films especially, which is another reason I love this one, because but it no, feels like he's I crawling mean, out a bit. I mean, they're... They've always been quite kind of um, indulgent pulpy. Yeah. Oh no, yeah, no, like, pulpy. like kind of pulp fiction, pulpy. No, certainly <laughs> not. Well, no. In 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 terms of kind of it, it's stuff that um, it's stuff that he likes, and this and the things that he likes are kind of old sort of um, uh, war movies and um, westerns, westerns, and, and kind of well, like they're uh, unapologetic. And, they're unapologetically yeah, about what he likes and what yeah, turns him not, on. It's not that kind of um, uh, art house or um, yeah, yeah. Like like him him disappearing up his own ass is is. I think is, I think Phil was more alluding to indulgence. I'm more forgiving of it than most, but there's a lot of people who would argue that after Sally Menka passed, his movies became a lot flabbier. That's, and that's they, my argument, it. certainly. Yeah. Uh, the last film of his she edited was it? Did she do Kill she Bill? She did Death Proof. She did. Was that the last one? Yeah. Well, then you'll know. Like after which is that, ironic because I think Death Proof is Tarantino's longest film, despite technically being his third shortest. Ha 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 ha! Um, but that's not her fault. Uh, the but that in terms of time, all the films. The af- yeah, uh, after I, I mean, uh, oh, I, 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 why why is it why is it not? Sorry, uh, her, uh, her her fault. Well, like you know, she she had to down as best she. You can't exactly turn around to Tarantino and say, "There's a lot of talking here. Can we cut that? Can you imagine saying something like that, Tarantino? This is a bit talky. That's Shauna Shan a bit. Do we really need it? Yeah. It, it well after uh, after Death Proof the films did get longer yeah and it's like I remember seeing Hateful Eight in the cinema and we we're about I know you're a big fan but allow me this Darren I just remember being an hour in and I looked at my watch and I just thought oh no too much it, it, they're too long they're too oh, goddamn long that was you not enjoying it. no I'm not I just, <laughs> just so we're clear um, yeah, I'm not a in case listeners didn't yeah and Django <laughs> I don't 
Oh, thank you very much. Again, the ASMR and other mm, strange noises. Uh, enjoy, folks. Uh, God damn it, Andrew. Uh, get your head out of the gutter. Um, I Get your head out of uh, Quentin Tarantino's. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> no, there's, a, there's only room in there for Quentin Tarantino's head. And that's a big head. Um, but my point is this. Um, the films got flabbier. Uh, one of my, like I say, I'm not a big fan of Django. And one of my big problems with it is how goddamn long it is. Hateful Eight is even longer. This is 20 minutes shorter than Hateful Eight. So already big improvement for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, but yeah, uh, just, I think he's, this but is a film where he temper... Reservoir Dogs and... Reservoir Dogs only 90 long? minutes. Reservoir Dogs only 90 minutes. Oh, yeah. Because they feel like, like there's a lot kind of in them. Well, well Pulp, like, Pulp they're, Fiction they're, is two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah, but then again, that's... The, that, but but there, yeah. there's, there's a lot of kind of like... Um, there's a lot, a lot of on. scenes. Yeah. Yeah. But like and Pulp Fiction, you, yeah, 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 exactly. You can break Different Pulp Fiction down. That yeah. You're kind of going back to yeah. yeah, but then again, Pulp Fiction. I just love being with those characters. Uh, no matter what you think of them, even if you think they're just cardboard cutouts for delivering Stand dialogue. Ease. Standees. You think there's standees <laughs> yeah. for delivering dialogue? Uh, Don Travolta's have a double chin. <laughs> yeah, they're very fun standees, and the dialogue is sparkling and just. You know, so many iconic moments in the film. I'm sorry, I bloody love Pulp Fiction. Who doesn't? And if you don't, well, you're wrong. Um, come at me, bros. Um, I'm sorry, what was the question? The question was this. Is, is it on your own personal 250? Give it time. It might. Okay. And Andrew? <laughs> that took a while. Would, it, would, I, would I put it on my own um, 250? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I might. I like I like the I like the ambiguity of it. Um I enjoyed um I like um I like the characters um in 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 this in in this movie quite a lot. I want to spend time with them. Mm. Um even though <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to those. Probably, yeah, we'll, we'll get. It's possibly like an objectively bad idea. But, but, but they, they 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 have uh, they have their 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 charm uh cer- certainly. Um yeah, that's the thing. They they um there's great uh, there's great charm in uh, in, 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 in bucket in, loads. Yeah. I mean, this is an actively charming film and I that's oddly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actively and oddly. Like I cannot think Yeah, I think the last film that Tarantino made that I, again, the that last name that I would describe as charming is Jackie, Jackie Brown. Brown. This is actually yeah, goes out of the, its way to make you like it in some ways. The, uh, a, a lot of kind of the charm of Jackie Brown was in um wholesome it was the um, ones of the cast kind and of characters. characters that you kind of um, like and root for. Whereas yeah. in, in, in this movie, there is a lot of charm to characters who you're not really <laughs> sure of. Yes, you and mean, the movie goes out of its way to suggest conflicting maybe. feelings about yeah. a character? Yeah. No, but the, but that, that that that's why that's why I find interesting. Yeah. Oh, this is this is there's a lot to grapple with here. That's an example. I love yeah. it, and also I know I feel like we're going to talk about Jackie Brown a lot here. Considering it's not on the two fifty, I will gladly take the opportunity. Well, we'll see how long this podcast goes. Maybe not two hours and three quarters, but we'll see how it goes. I'm braced for it. Um, but yeah, okay. And what about you, Darren? People First... listening know how long this is. <laughs> <laughs> we're not in the spoiler zone yet. Oh, we'd like to think we're characters you'd like to spend time with. Yeah, let us I, know. I love the idea of the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood podcast being a hangout podcast. Um, but... Hey, you're Darren. <laughs> Don't you forget it. 
Um, you know that, like, again, not to get too spoiled, that apparently was improvised by Brad Pitt. Woo, Brad! Uh, and it was based on um, a moment that happened with Pitt himself in the late 90s. Where Who he with? was Who with? No, it, he wasn't anybody famous. It was somebody he was hanging out with or somebody was working on a set with him or somebody was in his trailer. He was on a movie that he wasn't enjoying making and he'd actually like made it very clear that he wasn't enjoying making this movie. And the guy who said that to him was like, you know, you're Brad <laughs> Pitt. I would give my left arm to be Brad Pitt. Your worst day is better than my best day ever. And Pitt was like, actually, when you say it like that, Actually, yeah. I should probably be a bit less of a dick about this. When when was that? When did that happen? Late 90s, you said. Late 90s. See, the thing is... Brad, like, it feels like I'm trying to figure out what movie. Exactly. There are so many... <laughs> made, like, the Brad, thing- Brad Pitt's frustration is I'm kind of uh, making love to the most beautiful women in the world. But what if there are other planets with more beautiful women? <laughs> Maybe I'll never know. Uh, I, love, I love this idea of Brad Pitt as like uh, you know a Casanova version of Alexander the Great. When Brad Pitt saw his domain, he wept for there were no, no more worlds to conquer. To seduce. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know why this. The God knows why, but I'm just speculating. I would say that's got to be either late '90s, possibly Meet Joe Meet Black. Meet Joe Black because seems like the it's one. awful. Like he's, it's one of the most. Meet Joe Black. That scene. <laughs> I, oh, that's the car. The car the crash car, yeah. That's the only good scene in it because the rest of it is so. Pardon my friend. Spoilers we, can't, we can't reveal uh, what the scene is. <laughs> no, you've seen but it, you I will say this. We, that's we'll the best. Re- we will reveal the other side of the spoiler zone. Yeah, but I will say this. The only reason that scene works as well as it does is because the rest of it is so goddamn boring. I remember so bad. seeing that movie and laughing out loud during that oh, scene. So fe- feeling no, but feeling really uncomfortable because I was in a cinema of people who were like, "What the." hell are you laughing at of course you're laughing it woke you up <laughs> oh um it happens early in the movie though doesn't it yeah you're asleep by that stage regardless it's awful i hate me joe black with a passion all right and as for my answer to the question i don't know if it's on my 250 it'll probably take a couple of watches to assess it it's a grower not a shower no it is a shower oh my gosh um but it kind of like i've seen it three times i'm still trying to figure out how i feel about it which is a good sign no i know it is a good sign because you know I'm not a guy who typically second guesses movies. I'm not a guy, generally speaking, when I form an opinion of a movie and I go back, it might shift slightly, you know, up or down, but it won't radically reverse. I can't think of a movie I've seen where my opinion is radically reversed over time. And it's, this feels kind of like that. It's it's kind of, it's got like, there's a lot there for me to work through in a way that there very often isn't. So I'm really, really glad of that. And I'm actually really glad to see it. It's sold out. It's We went to see it at the Lighthouse. We did. Both nights. I went to see it Wednesday with uh, Phil and Thursday with Andrew. Sold out. And completely. sold out those screenings on those two nights and also sold out Friday night as well. So Marvelous. it's going very, very well, which I'm very big, happy to see. Big crowd. Um, Cues in, lining yeah, up. Yeah, well, as we were leaving the cinema, they were, they were like, get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Let us in. Let us in. Um, and then final question is that if listeners have not watched once upon a time in hollywood if they haven't seen it yet would you recommend they pause the podcast go out watch it come back and listen to the rest phil uh yes yeah and uh i'd say watch it in a cinema as well. definitely for the best yeah. experience with a crowd um, yeah there was uh i was saying to uh saying to somebody at work that i'd seen it and they were like oh i must must uh must check that out in my dodgy box like download illegally <laughs> god and it's it. like well like if you want if you really if 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 you want to watch it, kind of may, maybe go out and see it in 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 in, in, a, in cinema. a cinema. But if you're just 
uh, bored and don't care. Why bother <laughs> at all? Uh, yeah. Also, this uh, friend of yours, uh, we will be passing their name on to the relevant authorities. Not Piracy. Right. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Andrew's already distancing himself. It's like... Piracy is a crime. Do not accept it. Andrew doesn't like him. He doesn't like the vibe he brings to work. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't dig him. Thank no. you, Kurt Russell. <laughs> all right, then. So join us on the other side of the spoiler. <laughs> Spoiler zone. So, Phil. Yes, Darren. What is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood about for you? Um, it's mourning. This is a film that is in mourning. It's lamenting the passage of the optimism of the late 60s, particularly in cinema. It's, as we were saying before the spoiler zone, it's harkening back to the way movies were made and thought of in the 90s the stars the uh the enthusiasm that came about with like the sundance kids uh all that kind of thing but it's mourning them in a way it's more like a wake it's a celebration of what has passed and it's looking back fondly it's 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 yearning basically for i suppose a different time which unfortunately in these days makes it sound more like somebody who's like Damn kids today, when I was making movies, it was... This is not a Tarantino impression. Um, it's a, it's, it's also Grandpa not a Rodney Dangerfield impression. And I thought it was more uh, Grandpa Simpson playing Quentin Tarantino. Well, you know, the thing about my movies is they're all about the violence. But I reject your hypothesis. You can cram it in your ear. Um, what the hell? Um, yeah, that's my book. It's, it's a film that's tinged with sadness. But at the same time, it's having a heck of a lot of fun looking back. Yeah. I will. I. I. I kind of. I. I tend. To, I tend to disagree, or, or at least kind of. If this is. A well, movie, I mean, if, it's not being mopey about this morning. No, but this. This is. This isn't a kind of a movie that's sort of um, reminiscing or mourning or grieving in the traditional way. Mm. It's. It's. It's telling a revisionist. Um, history well, and reclaiming it and, and, and saying kind of like which is strange because it's in 69 yeah I mean which it, is it's following kind of 68 and uh, the, the, the revolution like, yeah no no no, like, no, no but the, at the election of Richard Nixon the riots in Chicago uh, Martin Luther King yeah well, that, that, um, like it's, it's uh, the end of the Bobby 60s Kennedy. like yeah the, but it's funny that this in people's kind of um, uh, imagination or memory was 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 the was the uh, sharp violent death? Well, of, I think of, of I think the, the thing was the the, the rest of the sixties. It was the other violent events of the sixties. So you had like a decade defined by. On the one hand, you had the optimism of you know free love and all this kind of thing, and the sixties expansion, oh, expansion uh, pacifism, all that kind utopian of thing. communal living. But at the same the summer time, summer of love in theory. You know? Yeah. So at the same time, though, you had political assassinations. The Kennedys, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, whoever else. Vietnam, the Vietnam, ascent of Richard Nixon, exactly. the riots, the, yeah. Um, I think the... the ascent of Richard Nixon, it, so, it does sound like something from Star Wars. Richard Nixon, I am not a crook. I think the reason that the murder of Sharon Tate and her friends in her and Roman Polanski's home... I think it was a shock to people because prior to this, you had the deaths of soldiers, the deaths of politicians, the deaths of 
uh, leaders of uh, movements, social movements. This was rich white people. If even they aren't safe in their homes, who is? This yeah. is like this is movie stars. These are people that Young everybody are supposed hopeful. to love. Young hopeful, they embody yeah. uh, things that pe- everybody aspires to: wealth, looks, fame, sex appeal, everything. Yeah. And not only killed, but killed horribly. Also, factor in the fact that Tate was heavily pregnant. pregnant. As well. uh, I, that everything about it was just horrible. It, yeah. And the fact that it wasn't somebody with a design as such, it was just this wacko nutjob Manson and his small band of followers. Although his plan to trigger Helter Skelter, it's it's all based on this weird delusion of like trying to change something. I think it basically holds up being obsessed with with the movie producer, with the record industry, yeah, and the the way he had he had he he had he had imagined um, kind of being the 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 next next Beatles or or the the, and the Beach Boys kind of stealing. Well, that's it. I mean, it's all of this sort of stuff, and uh, Hmm. how how kind of little Sharon Tate. Um, actually had, mattered that design oh he had that. no like, he, he met had. her once uh, and again the movie dramatizes it the movie actually moves the date because I believe it was later in the year yeah uh, but that sequence with Manson in the film which is the only time Manson appears in the movie he's notably absent when Cliff goes to the um, when Cliff goes to the ranch. Spawn ranch and um, he, never, he never appears in the film again in yeah. fact they never mention the name Manson they never mention yeah Manson either Charlie's but, gonna dig you but uh the sequence with Charles Manson, where he sees Sharon Tate, is apparently based on real events. Yeah, he did like come he, to the he, house looking for Melcher. He did he drive that, that van, the yeah. Tinky van, and he did wave at Sharon in the door. Sharon found him odd, and Sharon asked questions. So I think it was a Jay. She asked Jay Sebring. Yeah, later on about. But to bring it back to what you're talking about, this is interesting because, and again, it's notable that uh, the Sharon Tate move, the Sharon Tate death to a certain extent, is the ego of Hollywood. Or at least I've always seen as the ego of Hollywood. And I think that, like, um, it was Warren Beatty did Shampoo, which was loosely inspired by the life of Jay Sebring, who yeah. was one of the other victims. He was in the house when yeah. that happened as well. She, he, he was an ex of Tate's. Yeah. The well, film actually acknowledges this. It's such a strange relationship, a kind of a, this love triangle between him, Polanski, and Tate. Yeah. But, you know, I suppose their living arrangement is kind of indicative of this kind of, of an optimism. Yeah. Of, you know, that they you could have... You could have it every which way you wanted, I guess. But the the thing is that Beatty originally wanted Shampoo to build to the death of Sebring's or the character Sebring as the end of the 60s. And again, you have that great uh, Joan Didion uh, essay, The White Album, which we'll include mm. in the show notes if we can find it, where she talks about, you know, several things. There's some really great passion there. She talks about how, you know, she remembers... How, unex- the, how, how, how expected. That's was. it. Yeah. Um, you know, nobody was surprised. Nobody was surprised. But also she tracks the death of the 60s to August 9th when the murders happened. And Beatty, when he was making Shampoo, thought about portraying it that way. But Beatty's actual observation was that this was very egocentric in terms of Hollywood. Because if, if you look outside of Hollywood, and Andrew Andrew sort of makes the point there, to a certain extent, the 60s had already ended by then. In 1968, the summer of love had imploded in San Francisco into a den of inequity, drug use, drug abuse, sex abuse, all that sort of stuff happening. Yeah. You had and the it riots. started in San Francisco? It's in, certainly like Charles Manson had kind of gotten out of prison and then got into... Into San Francisco and begun recruiting there. And he picked up a lot of his techniques, I think, from the street preachers there as well. But I mean, even beyond that, you have like Nixon's election in 1968. Yeah. 
And again, like even now, um, around about, say, 2016, 2017, with stuff like Brexit and Trump's election, you had a lot of essayists who were writing on the lines of it feels apocalyptic now. It evokes the feeling of 1968 when you had like the riots outside the Democratic Convention. Yep. You had Nixon ascendant. Uh, sorry to use that turn of phrase again. Lot, but even. Yeah, like, like a, a lot of people are. Um, yeah, have said that this is this is the last time things were 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 as bad as they are now. Yeah. Um. In in America, they've said. Yeah. This. Yeah. yeah. And and I mean, even beyond that, you have the Vietnam War, which obviously has started earlier in the sixties, but with the Tet Offensive in sixty eight, um, had sort of turned the tide and turned the American experience of it. It and soured it. I mean, more Americans were getting killed. That's it. And you were starting to see footage of the coffins coming back and stuff like that on television. You had Cronkite who'd gone over and been embedded and sort of reported on how you know the best case scenario was a stalemate, and you had this sort of like shifting of cultural consciousness happening, mm. and. Again, when Beatty was making shampoo, he initially wanted the Manson murders to mark the end of the 60s, but saw that as an act of tremendous ego of kind of a, an ensconed Hollywood sort of elite, again, to use that word. But the idea of that, like, you know, how egocentric must it be to think that the 60s ended when one of your friends died randomly in a brutal attack that you can't make sense of, as opposed to all the other stuff that was happening. And there's an element of that in Once Upon a in Hollywood, and I don't mind it because you get little bits and hints of the f- stuff happening outside bubbling. Like in the car outside Musso and Frank's when they're driving mm-hmm. away, you hear reports of fighting in Vietnam. Yeah. When Cliff is giving Pussycat a lift to the ranch, she's pointing out people are dying in Vietnam every day. And there is this sense of a remove existing. And like, this is the thing where, and this is where I give Tarantino a bit more kind of, I... I well, it's still a r- remove now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, kind of... Um, it's a bit of a I hate to say this in case I come across as any kind of critic of it all but it, it, California I suppose and certain areas of the states come ac- might seem like kind of liberal bubbles yeah and, right. well, I mean, and well, suddenly the they're being encroached well, upon by, real- by a certain dose of reality in a way yeah I suppose there, there is um, they, 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 it's part of the kind of polarisation yeah yeah um but one of the things that i like about once upon a time in hollywood is that it it's very much about that bubble and about preserving that bubble and it's one of the things that okay i'm not going to say it seems indulgent it is indulgent but i give tarantino a password and it's, large it's part, a movie about movies it's gonna be movie that, it's gonna be indulgent anyway that's it exactly and i i'm willing to cut tarantino a bit more slack than most of his critics are some of his critics are because tarantino is already done his movies about being outside the bubble that's it exactly yeah, well. yeah like he did like inglorious bastards about like the rise of fascism uh and, django unchained yeah. like tackled like took a look at like the how horribly it's messed up america's relationship with races at a time when nobody was really talking about it hateful eight i would argue was a year ahead of the curve in terms of predicting what was simmering beneath the surface of american culture i'll put it this way and again i'm trying tripping on dangerous territory here but you're talking about the polarization one thing that tarantino got a lot of slack for was it's you in those two films particularly Django and Hateful Eight was use of racial epithets one yeah. word in particular which is it, absent here notably I think it, is this his first film without it possibly yeah, yeah if yeah. not Death Proof but this one I would imagine there wouldn't be much use for it in oh wait there is a black character in, uh, in Glorious Bastard yeah. but never mind uh, my point is this uh, do think about context they're films about slavery yeah. those two so yeah. it, it, there's a lot okay granted it's bandaged about a lot but at the yeah, same time these slave owners exactly like, uh, N-word yeah, yeah. I, it's if you if it makes you uncomfortable, that's kind of the point. Yeah, yeah. But it's 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 it, yeah. It's 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 what the filmmaker is is, yeah. is intending. But I I think um, 
I think some people like I I how does Spike Lee fall now on uh, uh, Tarantino? Uh, Spike Lee still I, critical, isn't he? I remember yeah. Spike Lee said about Jackie Brown, another film which a particular word appears quite often. He said, "What's his obsession with the word? Is he trying to be an honorary black man?" It's <laughs> just. Uh, if he was Spike, I, think, I don't think you're the man who's going to give him the award. Uh, well, I mean, it was, it was Samuel Jackson have... who apparently gave him the, the pass, is how it's been described. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. And wow. I, I think, by the way, that Quentin Tarantino would 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 quite like to, to be. To, to, yeah, to, or, or to have the, 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 the right to. Yeah. I, I, th- I think a lot, a lot of his kind of um, affection for kind of uh, black exploitation yeah. movies and that sort of yeah. thing. Oh, like he, 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 he resurrected Pam Greer. What, that's the. Yeah, mm, that's clearly his love right there. But um, so, like Tarantino has done work outside the bubble. I think and that kind of that makes it that think, makes it okay for me that like this movie is very much about the. It's entirely about the this, bubble. Yeah. There is nothing outside the bubble. Like when Pussycat brings up the Vietnam War, you're meant to go, yeah, but that's not the movie we're in right now. He's um, a war hero. As yeah, well. he is as well. Cliff is a war hero, um, and he has scars all over his body. That might be from stunt work as well. So you have yeah. like you do have this, you know. It's more likely that he was tortured. <laughs> was it? I mean, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it but that's the I, thing. It I could be either or. And think kind of um, bad oh, fall. Um, or, yeah, because yeah. he 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 had a bad fall, and then the surgeon flayed him <laughs> in order to do like. But that's the thing. Uh, it, it could um, be either skin or. Graft. It's like we got to get the rest yeah. of this off. I, it's just one, it, one. Yeah, one, one of one of the scars uh, looks like it might be something like that yeah. but, and yeah. on his arms as well in particular he's got a lot of cuts as well but it could be either or that's kind of the contradictions yeah. in, inherent in the character of Cliff it could be from stunt work it could be because he's a soldier we don't know there's yeah. a, a lot of unanswered questions about the man yeah and I mean and that's his wife yeah are we going to talk about his wife now do we want to go in there well, we're gonna have to go in there at some point. Okay, so go ahead. Are we gonna? Okay, we're gonna. Talk and we're in the spoiler zone, the, so why not? One, of, it's one of the big controversies of the film. Anyway. Yes, the possibility that Cliff murdered his wife. In fact, most other characters take it as a certainty, with the exception of Rick. And the implication is that Rick is more in denial because he's his friend. Um, so you have stuntman Randy saying, you know, I don't, I don't dig Played him. Played by stuntman Mike himself, Kurt yes, Russell. Yes, Kurt Russell, who's talking about how he murdered his wife when he's fighting. Even in his Oof. memory of the fight uh, with Bruce Lee, which we're going to talk about later, he's one of the guys, it's like he's famous. He killed his wife and got away with it. Um, and you see a sequence in the film that is left deliberately ambiguous, yeah. where his wife is on a boat. It's a flashback to when he and his wife yeah. were on a boat, and she's complaining and bitching and sniping at him, and he has, look, is it a harpoon gun? Yes. And it's and aimed, in, yeah. And he's holding it in a nonchalant way, aimed at her in her direction. We never see the finale of, yeah, of that the, the outcome of that scene. It's now, of course, being a direct reference to the Robert Wagner, Robert Wagner, and Natalie Wood, Wood. Right? For the longest time, I would have put money on it being Christopher Walken. Really? Like, yeah. I don't know why, but now okay. that they're interested in Vaughn again, like, oh, okay, wow, benefit of the doubt. Well, I mean, you, you know that, like, again, not to go too deep in this, and I'll include some sort of stuff in the show notes, the accusation was that Walken and Wood were close while they were making a movie together, and Wagner was jealous of that closeness that they shared. Yeah. And apparently earlier that evening, there's documented reports of Wagner having an argument with Walken about parenting ostensibly, and the idea of Wood leaving her young kids to go off and make a movie with Walken, with Walken defending it, and, mm. and Wagner being like, she shouldn't have done that. And then and everything then, flowing from that. Yeah, well, of course, like that scene is quite actively uh, bringing that to mind. Yeah. That's what it's uh, based on. Well, again, it's rooted, it's rooted in old Hollywood as yeah. well. 
But it, but quite cleverly, and again, we're coming back to this idea of the ambiguity. film not being pre-chewed, if coming with certain ambiguities. Make up your own mind. Yeah, there's I mean, no evidence either way. This is this is the thing, and again, we talk about this being one of Tarantino's most personal films. Mm-hmm. And again, this is where I worry I'm reading too much into it. Darren, read too much into something? Never. First time um, for everything, huh? But Tarantino. And again, I kind of like, maybe I give him too much credit here. Again, this is the thing where he's so much of Tarantino's personality is out in the world in terms of interviews, in terms of press he does, and the way he expresses himself. You know, Are we going to have I'm to shut God. your butt down? Um, yeah, we're going to have to shut this down. I reject your hypothesis, Phil. Uh-huh. Uh, but even things like, but in his work as well, we talked about how Tarantino's films reflect his own interests as much as anybody else's. He makes mm-hmm. movies primarily for... Feet. Yeah. Oh yeah, we'll talk about those. <laughs> we're going to come back to those. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, but he makes the kind of movies that he loves watching and he, he makes the movies that he wants to make because they reflect his own interests. Right. And he injects himself into it, often literally in terms Stroke of like his his Sorry. role. Jesus, in terms of his role, it's like Come he on. he plays. He plays <laughs> Jesus. I anyway, like, but, I, I missed that. But I'm Tarantino, kind of Tarantino, you know, playing roles in them as well, literally injecting himself into them. Yeah, uh, and, that's another reason I don't like Django and Jane. But anyway, oh, you mean his Australian well, accent? I, I, yeah, I like the way that pays off. <laughs> yeah, it's enjo- the, the, yeah. The, the, in, up. in Django Unchained. I, uh, as soon as he came in as a cameo, I'm like, "You self-indulgent!" <laughs> like, what? Uh, this is this is just egregious. What are it you is. doing in this movie? And then he just gets blown <laughs> to pieces, and it's like, yes, wasn't worth it. I'm saying, good. It, it wasn't worth it. I, I no, hate. I feel like it was a, it was short enough of a setup. Yeah. And a, f- a fantastic payoff. I and I thought it worked thematically the, with the, the idea of, um, of Schultz as a stand-in for Tarantino. The guy who's incredibly verbose and can talk his way out of everything. And maybe this isn't actually his story. Where at the end he's like, yeah, we're all free to go, but I'm not going to shake your hand. Uh, and it's like, damn you, Tarantino uh, stand-in character. Um, but no, the, the thing about, say, this movie in particular... Mm-hmm. And again, this is this is hard to talk about. It's because it comes in the context of the post Me Too revelations in terms of Weinstein and in terms of Tarantino. Well, it's certainly unavoidable because the Weinstein company, first Miramax and then the Weinstein's own company afterwards, they released all of Tarantino's movies from Pulp Fiction until Hateful Eight. Yeah. So Tarantino this is the is, first one without any involvement of Weinstein whatsoever, for right? obvious reasons. Yeah, and um, um I, it's Tarantino stru- grappling with that as well. And yeah, he, and he's not. I mean. Kudos to him. He's not avoiding it. Yeah. He's not. Uh, he's nor, nor is he being kind of, um, uh, you know, ma- ma- making a, a, a didactic, yeah, no, he's not. clear um, yeah. uh, this message is about how, about what, how what wrong it was see. and how, yeah. how well, distant I am from it. Well, there's two things about that. One. He's kind of facile. He, yeah. The, the two things about it. One, he's not, he, he's doing the same thing in, there's a kind of reflection in him in say the character of Rick and his relationship with Clint. And yes. That, yeah, he did some horrendous things or he's accused of doing some horrendous things, put it that way. But at the same time, I know the guy, he was a friend, he's been very helpful to me. So I've kind of like have to, I'm wearing two hats here. I've got, yeah. yeah. He's actually saying, I, I, I'm very, I'm very mixed up on this. And so you'll pardon me if my opinions on it are a bit less clear cut than yours yeah because yeah. so, some of us will have friends or family yeah who, who, who have done bad things yeah, exactly yeah. and, and, how and secondly it? secondly it also shows that he's willing to give his credit his audience with some intelligence and not be didactic 
and allow them to draw their own conclusions and make up their own minds about certain things. Now, when it comes to Weinstein, I think we've all probably made up our minds on that. But it does reflect broader issues in general about how you feel about certain things and how they're going to be coloured by your own experiences. That, that, I mean, it's it's maybe um, irresponsible, but I, I like movies that are open to having the um, uh, the wrong kind of interpretation. I, th- I think we, we, we spoke about Gone Girl. Yeah. And about, like... How it's been appropriate. Certain people I kind of, like, latching onto And using, go- Gone using Gone Girl as a verb. You know, that yeah, sort of yeah. I've been Gone Girl. Yeah, or, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's... I've got a love Gone Girl for the same reasons that it's so thorny. There are so many ways to read it. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of people out there who say maybe have been in relationships, men and women like, and they're looking back on their experience and thought, wow, I kind of really got Gone Girl there, didn't I? I it's Everybody brings their own experiences to these things. And Tarantino's approach here is to leave, let it be very open and let your experiences inform how, how you take it like the cliff thing did he didn't he we don't have enough evidence to conclude either way well that's the thing with the the cliff thing because it's it's amber tamblin um has talked about how like she's talked with tarantino about weinstein and for tarantino and she's talked about how for tarantino weinstein was more than just a partner he was a friend but a dependent he was a man he relied on a factotum a father figure to a certain extent for tarantino well like he and was so, the, like in, in that situation fat scrotum sorry um delightful um like, but the idea and and then the idea of like processing how you deal the with most it. accurate descriptions of a weinstein <laughs> yeah sorry um Lovely. i shouldn't fat shame him <laughs> <laughs> for being a big scrotum, though. Coming for back, a monster. Um, I think more yeah. for being a monster Coming is probably back, what you should shame. I must for. come back to shaming later, actually. <laughs> um, but in the, in this, you've actually thrown off my train of thought. Thank <laughs> um, you, you and right, your fat to scrotum. It, get back to it. Scrotum, scrotum, scrotum. Shut scrotum. up! We're just getting you in. The, in the, so set it up. Hold on. Take it again. One line back. Fat Line. It's gone. It's gone. No, got it. Evil Hamlet. Yeah. yeah. Evil sexy Hamlet. Evil se- <laughs> people people are afraid of evil sexy Hamlet. Um Yeah, so like when Tarantino made Pulp Fiction and someone like Weinstein and his company taking the chance on that, like he saw the promise in Reservoir Dogs. With lots of movies. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. many movies that we never exactly. might have got a chance to see. But yeah. filmmakers like Tarantino dependent on someone like that. I mean, it was it was a lifeline. Yeah. Without Weinstein, there wouldn't be the Tarantino we have today. Somebody yeah. might have taken the chance, but not to the extent yeah. that Weinstein did. And I mean, and to like to give Tarantino credit, he's talked in interviews and he's and he's conceded that he knew more, or he knew enough that, that he, he should have asked something. questions or he should have intervened. A, l- a, it, a lot of people in Hollywood like uh, the same with kind of uh, Matt Damon as yeah. and Ben Affleck have yeah. had to do with this how, about having been told things and dismissing um, just. It. Are believing that oh this has been this has been dealt with yeah um this has been this has been addressed uh, Weinstein did something inappropriate he was uh, called up on it He's this apologized. person seems yeah. to be working with them again so yeah. they must have kind of put aside their differences yeah. and everything's yeah. fine it's, yeah but it's, but I mean it, that gets at the whole like there's a sequence where stuntman Randy is talking to um, Rick about him and he's like I don't dig him I don't dig the vibe he brings on set dude killed his wife um and and Rick's like. You don't believe that, do you? And actually, I do. Um, and, you know, and you have Rick yeah. in denial about it. And a sense that despite the fact the two of them are as close as they've ever been, 
Like they've never talked about it. There's questions that, unanswered. Yeah. And and again, and it feels the, like Tarantino working through that. I knew enough to do more than I did. That sort of thing. Where yeah. Rick knows enough that he should be doing more. But and there not, is yeah. the balance. There is the fine line. Yeah. It's Tarantino working out that issue that he has with his experience, but at the same time, in terms of the narrative of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, leaving enough questions yeah. unanswered that he's not preaching to the audience yeah. about how to feel. Um, it's actually more talk about it now. It's just. That is remarkable. Absolutely yeah. remarkable. A couple of things uh, worth pointing out, actually. Luke Dunn, who's been a guest on the podcast uh, before and will be again soon, pointed out that the character, the wife, is played by Rebecca Gayhart, who was in a long-term relationship with Brett Ratner. Ah, another um, Me Too. Another Me Too accused. moment as well, just to sort of like add that layer on top of it. And one of the things I've noticed and I find interesting is that like there's a lot of talk about this movie in terms of, say, stuff like Inglourious Bastard, Jackie yeah. Brown, which we'll circle back around to. One of the interesting things that I don't think has been discussed is how it relates to Death Proof. And particularly how Death Proof relates now watching it years removed. Because in 2018, Uma Thurman kind of came out in the New York Times talking to Maureen Dowd and talked about the famous car crash. Uh, which Kill left the Volume 2. Kill the Volume 2. Now, it, it didn't leave her with a limp or anything like that, but it did leave her hurt and damaged and sort of like unable to work for extended periods of time and also embroiled in a battle with both the Weinstein Company. What yeah, happened is... Uh, Tarantino saying to, to Weinstein oh it's Uma Thurman it's great she's going to be in the movie you can do everything you can put her in a car you, you can, can do anything you want for them yeah you can push her off a, <laughs> hit her with a Lincoln oh, don't say that to Weinstein <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh dear but uh, um, yeah no. like this it was the scene with the car crash and he convinced Thurman yes. to do the shot herself instead of putting in a stunt double yes that's it exactly which is incredibly and, dangerous yeah and I mean her line of dialogue and the way she talks about it, it's like like a director he didn't like to hear the word no now Tarantino has come out since like this came out in 2018 and he said it's the biggest regret of his life and like Tarantino has an immensely personal relationship with Thurman with no, she, Thurman like, like she was his muse yeah that's exactly the, the character of the bride created by Q and U uh, or is created by him for her yeah for her 30th birthday present, he presented her with the script. He lived in her house while he was, you know, writing and amending and doing pre-production on it. Um, I, I, even Maya, Maya Hawke, her daughter, appears here as one of the members of the Manson family, which we're going to circle back to and talk about in a little yeah. while. But it, it, it's... I tend to give Tarantino the benefit of the doubt when he says oh, that's the biggest... Uh, and she... Yes, uh, you, I like... Uma and Ethan Hawke? Yeah. 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 Gattaca. <laughs> yeah. I love that <laughs> she, is the, she is the genetic perfection I from Gattaca. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I, I love Gattaca. Uh, me way, too. That should be under two. Yes, it should. Uh, and I have to say, uh, you know, I mean, when we talk about people whose kids, you know, they look like them to a certain extent... I'm sorry, but Maya Hawke, is she, you had to believe somebody was diluted down to 50% Ethan Hawke and 50% Uma Thurman. She's like, it's, it's really her voice. I it's, think they actually did she's, that. She is. <laughs> or they, like, use, they use the production equipment from Gattaca. Like, like, I know the idea of 23 chromosomes, and each, but this is like absolutely perfect. Her voice is exactly like Uma's. Yeah. And there are moments where she looks in the camera, she looks, those eyes are yeah. Ethan Hawke's. It's, it freaked me out. She's, she's one of the Manson gang. She's the girl she's who runs the off. Who, yeah, she's the one who takes the keys and runs off. She has a very Thurman-esque delivery of the, oh, you'll need the keys. Oh, right. Um, yeah. Oh, when we watched that the second time, that freaked me. I was like, Uma? Yeah, because it's a very Thurman-esque delivery. She's very yeah. good in it. But anyway, but 
so I tend I tend to believe Tarantino and give him the benefit of the doubt when he says that it's the biggest regret of his life. It's notable that after that happened and before anybody knew about it, his next film was Death oh, Proof. She was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Death, pr- she was. Death Proof is um, a story about a stuntman who puts women in a car against their consent and uses the car as a Kill weapon them. to murder them and cripple them. Notably, the victim who he most heavily brutalizes in the first half of the film is Rose McGowan. Who was famously one of the women who was most victimized? She led the, mo- the, she led the Me Too movement as well, but she was most victimized by Weinstein. In fact, she was cast in Planet Terror, according to Robert Rodriguez, as a gigantic screw you to Weinstein because it was an open secret of how Weinstein had treated her at the and time. And she was in a relationship with McGowan at the time. Yeah. Were these not uh, Weinstein movies? Yes, they were. They were yeah. That's the thing. He did it as a screw to Weinstein. Yeah, and as well as. Like, as, a, as a- to Einstein, I'm going to put this person that you abuse back in your orbit. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but I'm going to make her a star because you threatened not, not to. A, well, because he, to Rose McGowan. he threatened to crush her career and stuff like that. He said that he, he and he spread rumors around town about her and he tried to make it so she couldn't work at all. Presumably Rose so why, would prefer to be be a success with uh, under some other um, Well, I mean, well, yeah, but Rodriguez's perspective was he was taking Weinstein's money and giving it to McGowan and giving her a platform that turned her into a star. Right. Or what, that was his argument. That was, and I didn't I quite do, work out, Sam. No. But uh, with that in mind, I think it's fair to look at her role in Death Proof as perhaps hinting at that as well. And it's also, notable that Stuntman Mike has a brother. His brother who works in the same profession as him. Do you remember Stuntman Mike's brother's name? Stuntman Bob. Oh dear. So yes, we have a monster who abuses Rose McGowan, with whose brother bo- works with in the same profession as him, name and whose name is Bob, uh, in hindsight. And it's kind of striking in that context. And also you have Death Proof making a star of a stuntwoman, Zoe yeah. Bell. Zoe Bell, who is the stuntwoman of, the stunt double of Uma Thurman. Yep, in um, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, and, and has a small role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood too. And I would argue that like what happens with Death Proof is that it's the point at which you see Tarantino becoming interested in revisionism in particular. Death Proof, yeah. he revises the first half of the film in the second half, where he has the women who've been victimized and exploited taking their revenge, taking their revenge on Stuntman Mike. And in particular, he has uh, Uma Thurman's stunt double doing an incredibly dangerous ship mass sort of stunt. But surviving that and taking revenge on the man who tried to murder her in a car. Mm. Um, and you have that sort of playing out throughout as well. But it's notable in and after that, Tarantino becomes more interested in rewriting history, obviously in Glorious Bastards and stuff like that. Django, and going back to the Old West. Yeah, and that sort of stuff. And even here at the end, you've got a rewriting of history as well to I offer a more pleasant Which we'll come back to. Bill is, well, it's kind of like, like, because it's taking revenge on the people who killed her. Yeah. Killed her, took yeah. away her baby. Yeah. Yeah. So like, like you don't get to have revenge on somebody that 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 killed you but in 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 kill bill you do yeah so it's 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 kind of like um uh, 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 revisionism because you're 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 yeah you're 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 t- 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 turning the tables to a certain extent yeah. as well um and it's notable i think that death proof is around the time that it becomes more sort of like kill bill's revenge is personal in that the bride is trying to kill bill, bill. Uh, because Bill, yeah, I know, because Bill murdered her husband that, to be. That's what that movie's about. <laughs> yeah, spoiler zone for all movies. Um, but yeah, revenge tends to be more personal in those movies. And then what happens with Death Proof is you start seeing it become a bit more systemic. Because it's Stuntman Mike does try to kill the women in the second half. But the reason why the audience is rooting for him to die is because you watched him do you it. What he first, does. Yeah. What he does in the first half and get away with it. And then you have it the same thing with Inglorious Bastards, where like, you know, does Hitler really do anything that awful in the movie Inglorious Bastards? Nine, 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 nine. <laughs> um, or is it because again you have historical context, and so it's it's watching him get you know watching revenge upon him for what he actually did in real life? Uh, but before you do, 
I don't look kind. Christophe goddamn balls in that film. Um, but anyway, so back to talking about like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Shall we? It's notable that again, the villain in this case is a stuntman. As in, not the villain, but the man who has done this horrible thing possibly to a woman is a stuntman again. And it's notable, and this is quite pointed as well, I found. And again, Darren reading too much into stuff, Mooney. Notable that what he does that gets him kicked off the set of Green Hornet is not only fighting Bruce Lee, which we'll talk about in a second, but it's denting the car owned by Zoe Bell, who is Uma Thurman's stunt double. And it feels a little bit like... This is the sense. first time I've ever thought, maybe Darren is reading too much into it. I don't know. I mean, the layers. In, in, in our Aren't show you? notes, we're going to have the... Um, Red twine the, board with yeah, all these little from, things. From, from, from this is Darren's... This is Darren's... <laughs> it's, this is Jaren's It's Always Sunny moment. Peppy Sylvia! Peppy Sylvia all over the place! Yeah. Oh. Why does Charlie Day sound like Daffy Duck in my voice? Um, but yeah, no. Like, to, like, Darren lives close to the airport because there's all of these storage trash. locker places where, where, where I can store all my different conspiracy theories. Yeah. Um, so don't worry, next week when we talk about Life is Beautiful, I'm going to wheel out that board. The, uh, the, um. the, the, the planes flying overhead, they help him with his tinfoil hat. Yeah. Okay, fine. No, fine. no, no, it's no, fine. You, it's just, you, it's you don't have to say, okay, it's fine. Just, this uh, this is interesting. It's just this is levels yeah. I never anticipated. Rick, Further down the rabbit wow. hole, there, please. No, no, no. Well, that, that's about as far down the rabbit hole as we go in this particular case. But don't I worry, mean, I mean this in the nicest possible way, Darren. It's just it's fascinating to see how your mind works. You're going into <laughs> oh many levels. <laughs> but no, I, I mean, was I the only person who saw that? Because it does. I'm feel just like, too stupid. Well, no, no, no. But it does feel like you're the only people who've seen Death Proof. Fair point. I <laughs> <laughs> see what you did there. Um, but no, uh, part of me wonders if Tarantino is working through some of his own responsibilities. Oh, where Cliff is, like, Cliff is admittedly, like, you can read him as a stand-in for Weinstein or dealing with, with Tarantino's issues with Weinstein. But is there a sense in which Cliff is also a reflection of Tarantino's, you know, sort of sense of working through his own responsibility with things like the Thurman inc- the well, incident? Yeah. yeah, like, it's ironic that... Um, after we find out what Cliff may or may not have done, he gets what is one of the most famous lines of the film, one of the biggest gags, where he looks at Bruce Lee and goes, anybody who accidentally kills anybody in a fight goes to jail. It's called manslaughter. And they go to jail. Okay, then. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Yep. Oh. And then I'm going to throw Bruce Lee in a car. Well, let's talk about the Bruce Lee thing. Then. Uh, first of well, all, I mean... casting. Oh. Mike Moe is... Dead on spit image yes. of Bruce. Yeah, it's amazing. If you ever it's watch, like they did the kind of uh, Rogue One. Yeah, it's <laughs> without, without CG Peter Cushing. Yeah, uh, it's uh, if you ever watch uh, trailer reactions on YouTube, watch the t- reactions to the teaser trailer. As soon as Mike Mo pops up, everybody just goes, "Is that Bruce Lee?" <laughs> Close amazing. enough. Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing, and Mo is really really good. He's hilarious. Um, it's yeah, just the the look, the haircut, and like when you the see him in the, the physicality, ca- even. yeah, and it helps that he's in the Keisho outfit. Yeah. It's just like anybody with memories of Green Hornet, like in the same shape as well. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. and just a speaking voice and everything. I've got it down to a T. It's a marvelous piece of work. And this has been again like the booth thing, a source of minor controversy for the film, where there's a sequence where Cliff on the set of Green Hornet gets into a fight with Bruce Lee, and they beat the old. <laughs> Of each other, it's it's quite funny. It's it's a really good scene, and I love that Tarantino when he was asked about it was like, "So is there anything notable about the scene with Bruce Lee?" And he's like, "Yeah, I shot no one take." 
It's like that. That's the only thing. People you have to forget add. that yeah. it's really well done. Yeah, Credit fan- to Mo and Pitt for holding it together. It's it's fantastic, and again, it's really well paced as well. It's not one take. Quite Most well, of the, the bit where, from the, the moment the moment where they actually have the fight, where they actually have like so when he kicks Pitt and knocks him on the ground, Pitt gets back up, throws him into the car, and then they do the bang, 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 up until the point I think where Zoe Bell shows up and starts yelling. And all the dialogue comes. before that, isn't it? Is all the dialogue before that in a take in a single take? Do, I'd be surprised do, if it wasn't. Do, like different shots in it. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think from at least the moment where the fight he, begins. He, he, the, the, oh yeah, yeah, because he's he's walking and then the camera focuses on Cliff, like who's drinking his milk. Which I love. <laughs> Did he get off his horse first? Uh, uh. But yeah, it, it's um, yeah, uh, but it, it's really well done in that yeah. sense, and it works really well. It has been a source of controversy around, mostly from yeah, around Bruce Lee, mostly from his family, where they have said oh, yeah, that they're upset. They're upset about, yeah, yeah well, well, yes, but on on the one hand, he's okay, just, he's portrayed as an arrogant asshole. In the but scene. yeah, he, he's not just a Bruce Lee who was there. He's also the uh, image that we have of Bruce Lee in popular culture that this is kind of skewering. Yeah, because it's basically portraying him as uh, arrogant and you know, bring it on. Basically, he's challenging all comers. And like the in particular, the family has said that there's a line where he goes, Cassius Clay. Talks about Cassius Clay. Would you? Who'd win the fight between you and Cassius Clay? That, that would, would never, never happen. happen. But if you had to, yeah, uh, I cripple him. Uh, yeah. Where like they say that he would never have said that he worshipped the ground that Cassius Clay later Muhammad Ali walked on. Um, well, fine, but my argument against that is: remember, the title of the movie is "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood." Yeah, it's, it's a fairy tale. It's a fantasy. It's yeah. a fantasy, yeah. and that scene in particular, the way it's set up and edited before and after, it's implied that it's in Cliff's head yeah. that yeah. the fight. May not have ended that way. It may not have even happened. Yeah, exactly. It's it's how Cliff chooses to remember because you have this thing happening throughout where characters are constantly lying, caught in lies. Most obviously, the first one is literally pointed out to the audience with uh, stuntman uh, Randy pointing out. You know, it's where it's like, "Oh, my car's in the shop." Uh, he Cliff just drives me around a bit, and it's like that's a f- lie. And you cut back and you see the car crash that crash was in. The um, but no, not not even that. You have things like the. Um, Cliff himself repeatedly lies to other people. He says, like, when he's talking to Pussycat in the car, he's like, I ain't never been to prison and I ain't going to prison for no, you know, jailbait pussy like you. Yeah. And it's like, but afterwards, when he meets Tex, within, like, not 20 minutes later, he's like... He's on know, a chain gang ever in been in, Ever been to Texas? Yeah, I've been on a chain gang in Houston. Last time I ever broke a cop's toe. Um, and so jaw. You have the, jaw, sorry. And you have this <laughs> juxtaposition between the two of them. Oh. <laughs> that was a very specific thing for him to have broken. Um, but yeah... You have this idea I of break your toe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's a very but at the same time, Cl- I break your toe. Yeah. <laughs> Cliff I is love that w- my Brad Pitt is Irish, very <laughs> <laughs> and not in the and not in the amusing snatch way either. Um, but uh, like, it's it's a, again shows a contradiction in Cliff's character in that he's somebody who is, seems to be lying about his own past and yet seems quite happy to catch out people and or tr- wants to catch out people in their own lies yeah. like uh, deflating uh, Bruce Lee's balloon by taking him on the fight the way he calls up Pussycat when she offers him a blowjob he says you 18 you got ID no because you're not and it's he's determined to call out people's guff yeah. or at the same time he can't one he can't uh, seemingly deal with his own 
and the one person who he doesn't really call out is Rick. Yeah. He, he never, you, you never get to that scene where you think in any other buddy movie would be inevitable where he's like slap around the face and goes, wake the hell up! Your yeah. career's on the wane! Do something! I mean, his, his kind of attempts to um, expose other people, it, it's uh, a lot of people's favourite scene in 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 the movie is the 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 the, the this kind of horror movie at the end oh in the, oh, yeah. in, 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 in the middle yeah, yeah. this at this yeah. ranch um yeah. i would love to see what tarantino would do with an out and out well, horror the rumor is that alone. one of the movies like verse 10th is a horror movie because again this is tarantino you believe a tarantino movie exists when you actually see it exactly but i mean and it's interesting in the context of that that even though you see it on screen that doesn't it's incredible that, way, it's unbearably it tense the yeah. first time you see it it's well wow. even the second or third time as well but i mean the to go back to the Bruce Lee thing, and even in terms of it being Cliff's memory, it's notable that like throughout the film, memory is shown to be inherently subjective. So you have the conversation where he's on the set of Lancer, and he's talking to the series lead, who's played by um, Timothy Oliphant. And he's Great like... Role. The shot. Yes. Yeah. And, and who's apparently cast because uh, Tarantino's a big fan of Justified. Oh, well, understandably. I mean, look at the casting of Manson as well. Indeed. But like the, the thing is that like he's like, so I heard you were considered for the role in uh, Great Escape, the McQueen role. Ha. Um, and it's like, and you have Rick saying out loud, I was never actually in serious contention. You know, there was a time when McQueen was maybe not going to do it. The three and there Georges. were three Georges and me. And it's like, it never was going to happen. But you see inside his head... You see him playing it out. Absolutely marvellous piece of CG work there where they paste DiCaprio into McQueen's role in The Great Escape. It's nearly seamless. Great job. Although, but, but it has just a little bit of wonkiness to make you doubt the whole thing, which is, of course, the desired effect. It's and great. That, that scene with uh, DiCaprio and Oliphant as well, you have these kind of jumps. Yeah. Oh, the it, cuts which makes it, Yeah, which makes yeah. it it's kind of clear that you're... you're, you're you're watching a... A uh, movie. Yeah, yeah. A movie about yeah. movies. Yeah, where, where the hat moves between, like, in the middle of their lines. It's in his hand one stage and on his head. And oh, that, that is it's very really intense. really great and really good and really disconcerting. But to go back to the, the Bruce Lee thing... Um, yes. You're sure that Tarantino was, wasn't like, oh, damn it! <laughs> <laughs> we we only got one take. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're fired. Yeah. Bruce Lee, yes. yes. But to go back to the Bruce Lee thing, and what I find interesting, and, and I think it's, it's Walter Walter Chow has written about this as well, is that a lot of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is about people projecting themselves and their insecurities and trying to kind of project an image of themselves basically into the world. And you see it with the sunglasses. Sunglasses are a big motif where it's trying to hide your eyes. The bit where when uh, Rick comes in front of the Mexican. Mexican, yeah, where Rick comes out of Musso and Frank trying to, I don't want to be in Italian, Italian movies. All right, uh, all right. Don't cry in front of the Mexican. And he has to give him the sunglasses so he can hide his tears. But like, it's notable that Bruce Lee in that sequence is wearing his sunglasses in particular as well, hiding his eyes. And it's, takes them off for the fight. It's notable that later on you get two juxtaposing images of Lee. You get when Sharon Tate is watching the wrecking crew. You and get a she memory. Members of training with yeah. Lee. And, and Lee and is much warmer, much friendlier, uh, and much more polite and much more playful and very and, affectionate. And again, based in truth, Lee wa- yeah. did train uh, Tate for that and was good friends with him. With and Polanski. Polanski. In yeah. fact, actually, it's notable again. Polanski at one stage suspected Lee because he found glasses um, in, like, Manson left glasses at the scene or had his disciples leave glasses at the scene in order to throw off the cops. Polanski actually took Lee to an optician to buy him new glasses so that he could find out if the prescription matched the glasses that were found at the crime scene. This is something actually we we touched upon when we talked about Chinatown. Uh, How obsessive Polanski became after the murders in trying to find out 
anything he could find out who did it yeah. Uh, but yeah he did go those lengths and like taming people it's probably what got him interested in the character of Gitties and his detective work but stories like that yeah I wouldn't doubt that it's of course Lee turned out to be a red herring but it is nice to see like especially compared to that earlier scene where he fights where Lee fights and he also later on you see him training separate Separate as well well. on August 8th yeah that's right Uh, it's you know calm before the storm those are actually they're only snippets but they're lovely scenes yeah um just but they also create a sense that like Lee is more than just how Cliff remembers him because and he's and more not just how Cliff remembers him how we all remember him like you had Tarantino's Lee worship with the whole game oh. of death motif in Kill the Volume yeah. 1. Yeah. yeah, the tracksuit. The tracksuit is Lee's tracksuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. Uh, Tarantino has idolised these people for so long, like we all have, and this is him grappling with all of that and saying, eh, maybe our hero worship is a bit ill-informed. Well, yeah, and I don't... It's not I wrong. Don't, I don't think it's... Just ill-informed. I don't think it's trying to say, um, oh, actually, Lee was... Um, Lee was this, not a nice uh, person. This arsehole. It's well, I think what it's really doing is it's just um, uh, exploding. The kind of um, it, it's it's. I think it's intentionally kind of annoying um, the yeah. fans. Yeah. Definitely. Um, which, like, which, which, which 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 is brilliant. Which 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 is a lot of the kind of um, uh, humor of it. Yeah. Um, it's notable as well. Actually, I did a bit of research on this. The showdown in Oakland. Which is fascinating. So Lee, when he first came to America, he started training in San Francisco. Uh-huh. And he had a very boisterous style and a very boisterous sort of like persona that he projected. And he would be very critical of the establishment of like martial arts established by like other immigrants in the in the country who would set up their own martial arts school. Yeah. And in fact, actually what he'd do is he'd cite their examples of their techniques as the ones that he was defending against and showing how easy they were to defend against. Um, and he'd give all these sort of big railing speeches and talking about, you know, how awful these were and how terrible they were and how he his kung fu or his martial arts was the only one that could really work as opposed to the stodgy old out-of-touch style, which apparently upset a lot of people. There's actually a show called The Showdown in Oakland <laughs> where one of the Is rivals... Manson there too? <laughs> no, Manson was... there at the same time, right? No. Uh, they would have been. They would have overlapped in terms of like late 60s in San Francisco and also then in, in Los Angeles and in California, obviously all in California. But... Wong Jack Man uh, thought that he needed to be taught humility, basically, and sort of put in his place. And they actually, they had a fight. And again, this is like something from a movie. From this movie. From this movie in particular. Because the fight was arranged that it would take place behind closed doors. There would only be nine people in attendance, including Lee's wife. And basically what would happen is the fight would be, again, first person knocked on their ass loses. And what happened was they got into the fight. Lee expected to win easily because he'd done something like this in, I think, Chicago. And he'd knock out in eight seconds. Lee expected that to happen this time. It didn't. In fact, actually, it looked like, apparently, according to the people who were there, they were fighting all over the room. The, they had to move out of the way the because seven, they're yeah. getting so boisterous. The seven people in the room had to constantly move because they were throwing each other against walls and stuff like that. How long what, did it take? I think the consensus is somewhere between seven and nine minutes. Oh, good lord. What happened is Wong Jackman actually tripped up. He fell on the ground. And Lee kept pummeling him until he conceded the round. And that was it. And that was it. They apparently agreed. I'm glad that happened. I was worried that the the the, the fight in this movie, where it's like, uh, um, if I knock you down three times, um, it see it seems like that's not that's not that that's a strange sort of almost like kind of boxing rules and mm. and not not um, martial arts based or no no not like a a a fight. It's like you knock me down, but like like a. Uh, 
I can get up again. Yeah. The, the, well, I mean, the whole the idea point, of conceding, kind of yeah. it's saying, okay, you win. Yeah, but, seems, seems seems a more but pure I mean, kind of a fight. The mm. fact the fact that um, you know he's like not the face. Don't punch him in the face. And as right. as as, um, as so Zoe like, Bell points out, like that's the serious lead. There, you're fighting. I also love you know the line. Um, Anyone ever tell you you're very pretty for a stuntman? Um, that apparently <laughs> came from Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds was supposed well, to be. He was. It wasn't the serious lead, was he? He was Kato. He was co-lead, yeah. But, I mean, yeah. yeah. He, he was the one of the big selling points. He was, and the series only ran one season and arguably only became a success after the fact. They, in that, like, it became a crossover a, with Batman and, and Robin. Batman. Yeah, 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 much like this movie had a crossover yeah. with Batman as well. But it... Boom. It, <laughs> pow. Pow. Um, zoom. Um, I actually I'm gonna yeah. get you in a Batman and Robin. Uh, but yeah, it, it has that sort of, like, atmosphere running through it. But... It does this thing that Tarantino took, and again, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood does this a lot, where it talks about what it's doing as it's doing it. Because what that scene with Cliff and Bruce Lee does is exactly what um, you know what what's his name Schwarz describes in the opening scene with Rick Dalton, where he's talking about like what you need to do is you need to establish your character's bona fides. So what you do is you bring in a heavy. It's hero versus heavy. Yeah, and you know what the audience sees. Is they see Cliff Booth beating up Bruce Lee, and uh, it's um, but because it, it does because it sets up the idea that later on Cliff can do these things, like when at the climax of the movie, where even when he's stoned out of his mind, he still kicks the still able to like. You haven't established like his 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 uh, bona fides by then. Um, his dog attacking <laughs> yeah. Bruce Lee. No, what, that <laughs> would have been a much uh, shorter this is the fight between yeah. Bruce Lee and, the do- and Brandy. I um, do like, by the way, the dog is really nice because that sets up the relationship. It mirrors the relationship between Cliff and Rick where, you know, Rick is, where, where Cliff is basically Rick's dog to a certain extent. But even things like when he's serving up the food and he's like, is that a whimper I hear? And he has a little gesture to hold, which kind of sets up later on the idea of how perfectly in control the doggy is even when stoned out of his gourd. So I think that's set up as well, to be fair. Yeah, um... And also, uh, just before I forget, shout out to Al Pacino in this. This is the calmest I've seen him in front of a camera since I don't know when. He's like, no shouty, no nothing, just mellow, relaxed. Even when he's talking about all kinds of violence. Pow. Pow. What a Rick Dalton. That was probably the last time he was so calm. But this year he's talking about, oh, the shooting. I love that stuff. So do we, Al. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um, and I also I love the Tarantino again this is like we talk about this being a movie Tarantino makes for Tarantino the insert shots of all the decadence and stuff as well like the moment where he's talking about how he had the double features like after my wife went to bed I cut myself a fine Cuban cigar and you get an insert shot of the cigar to show you how fine the cigar is <laughs> like a little I bit I made myself building up to something like let me tell you about what I said <laughs> it's the, the it's whole this thing, thing I do when I'm watching your movies. Yeah, the whole thing is like, <laughs> like, like the little insert shot of like the little Vermont that he's made, and the sort of like he poured myself some cognac. I don't like the mixture of of ice and cognac, and they do that like odd. a number of times in in in, in the movie. Do I they? suspect it's a it's a combination Tarantino himself likes. Yes. But uh, what's notable that Rick Dalton's bar is apparently based on Tarantino's own bar because of course it is. And of course Tarantino's own <laughs> oh, movie. Oh, you have that thing where the, the you tilt the, the it's, yeah. where you tilt the big bottle of brandy. I love that. That is great. I want <laughs> yeah. one of those. Uh, the only problem is you have to keep it more than half full. <laughs> but it always feels like the film draws attention to its kind of opulence before getting into a. Uh, to make a bigger point, like there's the scene early on where Polanski and Tate they're driving up to the playboy mansion and suddenly the word playboy flashes up on the screen mansion, and suddenly, tiny. mansion 
You know, that's the real Playboy Mansion. Oh, yeah. They were renovated. Apparently, it had been bought by somebody else who was renovating it. Apparently, Tarantino had to go and actually meet with this guy and convince him to let them use the what, Playboy Mansion. Are, 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 are the bunnies again? affected by the lease? <laughs> um, <laughs> Mr. Taranto? Tarantino? Tarantella? What? Torino. Who is it? Mr. Torino. Who is this guy? The bunnies. The bunnies. Yeah. Where? Where the 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 guy? Presumably put Presumably put out in a hut. I love that Andrew's like. Must be awful being Brad Pitt, thinking about how you slept with all the most beautiful women. It's like it must be awful shooting at the Playboy Mansion when there are no bunnies around. There were some. We just have to make do with with Margot Robbie. and and Mama Cass Elliot as well is there. She's one of the women who greets. Yes, indeed. Um, it's oh poor Mama Cass. Uh, I just remember that scene in Austin Powers when he's listing the people who he remembered who died. Jimi Hendrix, drugs. Uh, Mama Cass, ham sandwich. <laughs> Not Mamas and the Papas fans, huh? It's a pity because you're going to have to have Straight Shooter as one of the intro themes because um, it's a big part of the movie and, of course, the story. And again, the use of Damien Lewis as Steve McQueen, as Steve McQueen. primarily to deliver exposition and backstory. That, that is so unashamedly. The only reason yeah. is there. Like, you've got Steve McQueen, big star, sex symbol. I'm just going to deliver dialogue about a, a monologue about how it should have been me, but he, she's not my never type. I never had a chance. Well, I mean, that's the, the irony of the situation is that, again, and the, the argument is that... McQueen is obviously a mirror for Rick Dalton as well. Not only because of the Great Escape and almost getting Great Escape, but um, McQueen also began his career oh, yeah. in in westerns on TV westerns as well. His and first so, uh, it calls kinds of shock. I mean, his first film was The Blob. Yeah. So I mean, and we all have to start somewhere. But you have that idea of him representing sort of like a, a life a life not taken for Rick as well, which is quite nice. And exactly. it, 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 it's um, Rick Rick Dalton as well is mirroring um, uh, Clint Eastwood. Because like but, Clint, Clint Eastwood being on um, was going, it Gun, Gunsmoke or, Rawhide, uh, Rawhide? Rawhide Rawhide yeah, yeah. yeah. and then going and then off to make Spaghetti to Westerns the, yeah. Yeah. yeah just a pity that uh, Dalton got uh, lumped in with the second best director of Spaghetti Westerns but who also directed Django right if I remember correctly it's uh, Sergio Corbucci was it Sergio Corbucci 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 but anyway, one of one of the directors with whom he worked also directed the original Django, which is ah. quite nice as well. You know that those posters in the film were actually designed by a living artist who had drawn those posters They'd in the seventies because nobody but, makes those posters like that. They anymore. actually managed to track They're down marvelous. an eighty-year-old an eighty-year-old artist in Italy who did those original posters. And Tarantino would like pose in the style that he wanted Dalton to pose and send him photos, and then he'd do all the typography himself. It's also notable that the um, you know the Mad magazine covers and the TV Guide covers that yeah, Rick has on his with wall. Rick yeah sort of in the style of sort of like mad magazine stuff like that they were done in the style of those artists at the time but noticeably i think it's mad the last issue of mad magazine ever published Mm. which was published i think about a year ago actually featured a five-page strip spoofing bounty law it's a tv show that doesn't exist and wasn't actually anybody was aware of what it was before uh, the release of sort of this movie which is fascinating that is hilarious um and again we're talking about the mesh of like kind of high and low culture here in that you have this mellow uh, hangout movie with flashes of violence and issues dealing with issues surrounding contemporary uh, Hollywood and there again you have Rick Dalton who's trying to be this respectable clean cut star of TV when that's no longer a viable option so he has to go off to uh, Italy to make uh, these films with directors he doesn't particularly respect I remember uh, one of them one of the films he makes is credited as directed by Antonio Margariti, who might be best known for directing uh, the video nasty Cannibal Apocalypse. 
and it's like yeah i can imagine there are stars like there were stars like that who went off to europe to make these uh, movies because they were quick to do it was a quick paycheck but they might necessarily have the the respect that they wanted as a result of these things like in the example of cannibal apocalypse actually that star the movie star john saxon he made a lot of those kind of movies but after the fact he came out against them and said oh i really regret this one of the worst things i ever did yeah you still check out the paycheck well, i mean these like, are the kind of movies that tarantino likes yeah. well, the like, movies like that he, he and so many other people love and he cited wrecking crew yeah as yeah well. The like, Wrecking, he, like Wrecking Crew is not a great movie. No, but he, he was given like this this um, kind of uh, week of uh, of movies by I think uh, Turner Classic Movies said like okay you can create these um, programs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And they, they, um, I think it was one of them was uh, was Wrecking Crew. Well, I think it's just indicative of the kind of movies that you would have seen at the time because uh, like we said earlier alongside the likes of bonnie and clyde and the graduate you had something like the wrecking crew with an aging dean martin mm. alongside it's these younger to, stars trying to consolidate uh, his what's left of his stardom yeah alongside it, these up-and-coming starlets like sharon tate and the studio kind of hedging their bet yeah saying like kids love this kind of hippie stuff yeah but, and it's um, all kind of caperish but can we put um, like a, an established star exactly, in there yeah. so, like at this stage the original Ocean's Eleven was like nearly a decade before. Jesus, and it's, that was already... Yeah. yeah. But like even the brief scenes we see of the Wrecking Crew, which feature Dean Martin, his face is very lined, getting very aged. He doesn't... Uh, comparing him to his co-stars, yeah, they're a lot younger. And it's like, oh, Dino, Dino, exit stage left, please. It's very rare that we get like... In, on the podcast, we talked a lot about how men's bodies kind of change and the present- presentation of men's bodies change over time in cinema and stuff like that and how like you know Harrison Ford and Blade Runner is allowed to be a lot flabbier than you know Ryan Gosling and Blade Runner 2049 it's rare that you see it so starkly put on screen where it's like Brad Pitt is like one of our generations sort of like aging almost over the hill actors to a certain extent in terms and of yeah, age. And he still takes and his shirt off to reveal those. He's still but, got those abs. But you have him like but compared it's, with it's, Dean Martin where you're watching yeah, it and, and Dean yeah. Martin is very much like I'm Flabby. just, yeah. Flabby. It's not just that he takes his shirt off and has great abs. He's fixing the roof. He's fixing <laughs> yeah. the, the area. Having jumped onto the roof. Yeah, on the roof, yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. basically have, Brad Pitt and, can do anything. Yeah, and has this great kind of man's shed with like a... a Wires and tools. Tool and sort of like, yeah, yeah, everything is kind of, you He's know, a cowboy. Where it yeah. should be. And it's like a holster he puts on as He's well. He's basically a masculine ideal in this movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Physically speaking, and in the, terms the, of all the accoutrements. I but guess then, like the yeah. troublesome thing about it is, <laughs> is, 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 yeah. The, the, it's the backstory. The, yeah, that this guy has, He's got has killed serious. his wife. So, so Possibly. How... Um, I feel like uh, I'm on Have I Got News For You. Allegedly. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's um, it's, it's, it's interesting because confron- it's, it's the, kind yeah. of irre- irresponsible. You yeah, know? it's not irresponsible. I mean, it it's only irresponsible if you feel like you can't deal with the idea that yeah, this guy is everything you should aspire to, and yet he comes with baggage. Basically, he's a lot of people. No one's ideal. Nobody's ever going to be ideal. Well, and. I was going to yeah. say... I, I, this I, is sorry, your... Darren is like, oh... <laughs> yes, Darren. You, you are, are ideal. No, that's not what... Darren, thank you, you very much. No, it, the thing with... And this is the thing that makes me uncomfortable with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And again, to be clear, I absolutely love it. And turning it over in my head and stuff like that. This is the other side of what I'm turning over. Which okay. is the... Right, so... The movie is a very sympathetic and very warm movie. And yeah. in, in, in particular, one of the things that I really like about it is like... Tarantino, for the past couple of movies 
has been very fixated on the idea of revenge fantasies, of like brutally hurting those people who have hurt you and who have caused pain and suffering. So we're going to burn Hitler alive. We're going to burn slaveholders alive. You know, that sort of stuff. We're going to like make sure that everybody in this shed who is complicit in like racism and war and violence is going to die horribly. And what I find interesting about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that it is, to a certain extent, I'm going to qualify that in a moment, uh-huh. a story of redemption and hope in that, like, Tarantino's not using cinema to retroactively punish people, but I know there's going to be an eyebrow raise there and we'll come back to that one. He's using it to retroactively save someone in that the, yeah. the point of the a film is, of is not, actually. like, people. it's notable that, like, the film features incredibly graphic violence against the Manson family at the climax. People yeah. got upset about it, which yeah. is so strange. I couldn't it's, stop it, laughing. People, people were like, oh, "This," the, um, and I can understand why in why in twenty nineteen people are like, "Oh, the, the, there's this scene of terrible violence against women." Yeah, where he this grabs the one of their heads and smashes their head against everything. a phone and a table everything and all mantelpieces and stuff. But yeah, another one who gets savaged by a dog yeah. before being burned alive. Yeah, and. And first of all, they're not the only ones to suffer violence that scene. Number two, it's the Manson family. The the violence against them is as jarring and as horrible as the violence they themselves committed in reality. it's saving Sharon Tate. It's saving Sharon Tate. More more than that, though, right? And again, like, part of me, uh, this is where I'm of two minds. Like, part of me is like, this is Tarantino being the provocateur. And this is why I find it odd that everyone's like, this is his most mature movie. And it is his most mature movie. But watching that sequence, it feels like Tarantino's like, but not too mature. It's a little um, wink. It, it's a little wink. It's like, watch me see if I can push your buttons on this. It's a little bit and provocative. holy cow, does he ever, uh, because the, again, the violence is so jarring compared to the other two acts. came beforehand. It's so yeah. relaxed. Yeah. But, but that said, right, as violent as it is against the Manson family, it's notable that Tarantino makes a point mm. to only inflict the minimum amount of violence possible on the Manson family. In terms of, it's notable that Maya... Sorry, what? Maya, no, no, okay. Let, let me, Let's let me qualify make the argument, this. Let me make the argument before I get there. I'm talking about in terms of members of the family that he punishes. The film doesn't feature Charles Manson getting... Brian, no, but he wasn't. Charles no, no. Manson had nothing. Okay. He wasn't the crime scene. Okay, in no, no. I, 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 everybody's imagination. It's kind of yeah, all those terrible things that Charles, yeah. Charles Manson did. Yeah, I, I want to hear. He did them to I want to hear this. Let's have but, Darren have this. Okay. okay, go ahead. Right, but the point is, so take Maya Hawke's character, right? Yeah. She is in the car until the last possible minute. She's She goes up with them to the house. She's in the car when they meet Rick Dalton. When Rick Dalton is bashing the car and yelling at them, she's there. Yeah, she's there as well. She's walking up with the hill with them. She's about to be complicit in this. And then she changes her mind at the last possible minute. She says, I forgot my knife, goes down and drives off into the distance. That to me reads like Tarantino very literally signaling like, you know what the cutoff point for me brutalizing these people is? It's not joining the Manson family. It's not being hippies. It's not even driving up a road planning to commit murder. It's the moment you walk through a door with a knife in your hand. That's the point at which... I feel justified in punishing you. Or, you know, the movie feels justified in punishing you. Which is why... At any of those points, yeah, you like... can turn back. Yeah. You that's... have a... Se- you, which is you more know. more gentle, I think, than something like Inglorious Bastards. I mean, which it... is like, you're wearing a Nazi uniform, you're invited to a like premiere, you you're a white... Yeah, that's, yeah. You know I... your own future, so you can change it. Yeah. Don't make me change it for you. Yeah. No, no, this is kind of sadistic, but I like that they were, uh, were punished. Because, it, like, a lot of the reaction to the... Um, Manson family murders was oh these these um, poor these, kids these young white uh, uh, kids kind of what what um, how could this have happened and it's like 
Well, it's it's Charles Manson. Charles Manson is 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 the mastermind. Is, yeah, he and he's the the one we have to kind of like point the finger at. And they kind of said as well. They were like, oh, we were. Um, so they're we not. Were, we were made to do all this. So it's For, not like to, they were just following all those. Yeah, but to 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 kind of make them um, uh, he, suffer he, he for, for, for the things that they did, they, yeah. by by taking the um, it away from them, where they don't get to do it, and where instead they're the ones who are brutalized. Yeah, yeah they, I remember going into this. I knew that the film in this country and in the UK as well it has an 18s rating, strong bloody violence, and up until that point, this is like five six of the movie has passed. I thought. Oh God, what could there possibly be? And as soon as they open the door to Rick's house and Pitt is there, stoned out of his tree on an acid-laced cigarette, I thought, oh, it's going to go down. Oh, the dogs, there. oh, no, 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 no. And then the flame, part. off we go. And then it comes up. It's been so at ridiculous. At that point where, like, if I go into that house, I suppose they, they've, they've probably been geeking themselves up all day to do that. But you go in... And there's kind of uh, Brad Pitt is there, like holding a can of dog this, food, yeah. And, and there's this um, uh, dog, uh, yeah. uh, like um, uh, uh, not a not a Rottweiler, a boxer, a, is it? A boxer, yeah. yeah. No, no. What is it? Okay, but there's a, there's a, the an dog. aggressive guard dog there. Yes, anyway. yeah, yes. Yeah. Brandy. It's like a pit I feel bad for. We're not giving it. Brandy due credit. He won the Palm Dog. He did indeed. Uh, he deserved it. Absolutely. Um, great performance there. But my my argument is though that like after so many movies of like you know. Sadistic, sadistic tongue-in-cheek violence retributive violence mm. this is violence towards the end of redemption this is violence towards like the idea of like preserving Sharon Tate and imagining a world where Sharon Tate survived because that, that's the thing about the movie's portrayal of Sharon Tate we talked about the controversy earlier where they count the number of lines and somehow that measures Which is ju- that is ridiculous it I mean, is. how on earth is that any measure of anything but um, but I think in, that, in the portrayal of Sharon Tate what Tarantino is doing the one thing that we all do if we think about on this, we wish she didn't have to die. We wish she was still alive. Yeah. And this is, instead of the fantasy coming from the violence inflicted, the fantasy is coming from keeping her with us, of keeping her and her friends alive, that they didn't have to go through this horrific death and bloody end. Yeah. And at the end of the film, the people, the, the guy, one of the guys who saves her, Rick, is like, Oh, nice to meet you, neighbor. Come on up for a drink. It's, the, yes, the gates open. it's wonderful. Yes, the gates is open. Is it weird that Cliff is the one to to, to give her that uh, redemption? Well, because it's Rick kind of like, credit, well, credit. I couldn't save Natalie Wood. Yeah, but then <laughs> save you, Sharon Tate. Well, to and me, when I say yeah. I couldn't save Natalie Wood, <laughs> what I mean is, what I mean is, is that I definitely kill it. But sorry, um, uh, but um. Again, it, 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 there's an argument about how much you feel maybe Cliff deserves a redemption or that kind of notoriety. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that, so and he that, doesn't get it in the end. Yeah. I mean, he saved the day. He doesn't get he to be the hero. He carries Rick's load. I mean, this is the thing where like Rick and Cliff are almost two halves of the same person, which is uh, why they I'm trying to read they, Cliff as the, you know, as the shadow self of Tarantino as much as any embodiment. Well, I think, I think they're both uh, part of Tarantino right. in that he does have the cachet and the influence to, be, to allow himself to be as relaxed as Cliff and be as you know, content if he wants to be. I love but Cliff's life, by the way. <laughs> I like aspects when we, of when we were life. watching it. When Cliff gets 
when Cliff takes his sunglasses back off Rick and gets in his little blue kind of like dirty car, he's so happy. Andrew was so happy for Cliff. I that's wonderful. In, in in his trailer as yeah. well. Oh, and he's conversing with the television set. Yeah, um, where he's like, it's like, like this. This is great, Cliff. Like, I I feel like the movie is almost kind of saying that's oh, a very Cliff, strange thing for Cliff a doctor said, to say. And Cliff's Cliff like, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's so content with what is ostensibly a very kind of miserable Fer- life. Next, Rick. Ne- yeah. Rick was everything. Yeah. He's so all, unhappy. He's so unhappy and miserable and lonely. But again, and, and this is the thing where, and again, I don't no, want that big house. Like, <laughs> I want, I want that trailer. And, and it's funny because it's, so as well, it's the, uh, it's the, um, it's what we imagine Leonardo DiCaprio's life must be like: big house, own bar, like probably a lot of younger women though. Oh, there's that. Gr- I oh, just remember. It's funny, like Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio get seems to get all of the kind of. Um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio likes younger women um, uh, rap, which is true. He does. Well, there's so that great the, gag the, that. He, but there's so many. The, 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 there's that great gag at the. That's a. I, I hate to drag it down a bit, but I just remember because it, it made me laugh so much. I think it was uh, the Golden Globes 2013-14 when DiCaprio was up for The Wolf of Wall Street, and <laughs> and Tina Fey is hosting, and he comes on to present an award, and she just goes, "And now, like a supermodel's vagina." Let's give a warm welcome to Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> and he swans on stage. He's, and there's a look in his face. It's kind of like, yeah, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. And I, this is, I think this is great casting. About You are saying earlier how this was, the roles were kind of a toss-up between DiCaprio, Pitt and Tom Cruise. This is really well cast in terms of DiCaprio. If, because if, if it had been DiCaprio who's like, uh, let me see your ID. And he, uh, <laughs> what, what age are you? Okay, can we stress? Twenty. No, no. He doesn't like. Too, he too doesn't old. like Sorry, young no. women. No, 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 no. Can we stress? He's not that he doesn't like women who are too young. He likes women who are younger than him. Yes. I, I will. I must point that out before we get. I like the little some graph cover. that sort of charts Leonardo DiCaprio's age relative to his girlfriends, and it just sort of stops dead at thirty. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's but, but, but really yeah. like this. He this, gets older; this, they stay he, the same age. He yeah. he he gets. I don't a, think you're helping. Both, so. he, he, yeah, it's a, he oh, he gets sake. a lot of kind of um, uh, press for this, and it's something that kind of sticks uh, to him. But there's it's so many kind of um, actors. Yeah, why well, just uh, sports Statham, people? Example, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. But it's still a city like, girlfriend. But no, we could we could we could list twenty uh, uh, yeah. different it, kind of like people of the same kind of. Uh, well, yeah, uh, but again, maybe. it's not like they're doing anything wrong, are they? It's like what? No, they're just getting criticised because it of the was, age. It gap. was an offhand joke. I'm I know, sorry. but it's it's like Andrew saying he gets a lot of uh, notoriety for this it's in the fun press as well. I and guess. I can imagine, and, and like, can can he be that upset about it? Because I doubt it because probably, he's like, probably waking up next one right now, listening to this podcast, thinking, <laughs> "Oh, shut up!" That, yeah, that, yeah, it's like we can dream, Darren. For, yeah, for 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 having all of these sort of status symbols, which is what it is. Yeah. Like if if you're the, the, there's a lot of kind of like older successful men who who decide like, oh, I I, I want to because yeah. I can. But I mean that that's the thing is that Dalton is very you point out is very well cast DiCaprio because DiCaprio is famously. You know, I don't want to say insecure, but he's like very famous by the pursuit of the Oscar to pick an example. That was the big thing. Very demanding in terms of working with directors who are like, you know, the top of their game. And the greatest living director bingo card is what he has, where it's like Nolan, Scott, uh, you know, sort of like Tarantino, you know, all these all these great directors. Um, I always feel like the but the reason I like the casting in particular is that besides the caginess about his private life is the insecurity. Yeah, it's like you can imagine if the day comes and it may do goodness knows 
um, that DiCaprio does become that insecure that he feels he has to go off and star in goodness knows what with some director non-american well no director. it'll be the equivalent of going to netflix now is basically what it is like that i don't know like going I, to italy is the same as going to netflix now, i suppose basically. so That's the, if, you're, if you're pushing the metaphor and if you're reading this as like and i think there's an element of like well the 90s have ended how are we dealing with that in, in pop culture there's part of me that it. feels like dicaprio if he wants to make a point he'd have to go even further star in a, a film from a director that would never make a hollywood movie i don't know Leonardo DiCaprio in a, in a film by Apachakpong Wurisithakul or Tsai Ming Liang makes her English language debut with Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio's Bollywood dance number. I'd pay anything to see that. It's um, funny though because like moving to kind of television um, fair enough not making but the uh, thing not is not making cameos it's not I the guess. same but thing it, did, it, it, it would be a very different thing now. It, it's not the same thing because it's n- like going to TV it's is not the Italian is not the slumming us. Oh yeah, she's in Big Little Lies. Yeah, yeah. is that uh, Meryl Streep? On yeah. Big Little Lies. Oh no, I, I, I Cole Kidman in that. As yeah, well. yeah, she is. And Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, no, I'm, like the prestige television era has kind of eroded those boundaries. But again, exactly. DiCaprio and Pitt are kind of two of the big holdouts. They you know? would, yeah, they wouldn't necessarily have to go to TV. Yeah, but I mean, where you have people like like Michael Douglas doing TV, for example, you know, where you had like Al Pacino doing TV movies, Robert De Niro doing TV movies, and stuff yeah. like that, um, and even going on video on demand. So, it, like, I, I. I don't think it's an unfair... They're in the Irishman. I mean, yeah. Scorsese, De Niro, and Pacino for Netflix. Yeah. Oh, by the way, just on, in terms of dancing, it's worth noting that uh, Margot Robbie and DiCaprio's dances, DiCaprio's wonderful hullabaloo green room dance, Basically, which, which one was of the a most real show, incredible. by the way. It's, yeah, it was a real show. And it's one of the most incredible. It was famous so, for getting over many of the British invasion acts as well, I think. Yeah. A lot of the British acts kind of came to America through that. But the sequence where he's so uncomfortable so, doing Green Door, oh, it's Lord. like pantomime. You can see his eyes moving off screen either to read the cue card or, or to make like, sure the director is still like into what he's doing. And he looks so awkward doing that little twist. But that was done, that was choreographed by Tony Basil, actually, um, who had worked on Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces as well. And so it's kind of tied back to it as well. Um, she also uh, knew uh, she dated Jay Sebring as well ah. also worth noting that Bruce Dern who plays Spahn yes. um, he was People married will, will remember him recently for Nebraska right? yes Fantastic and for Nebraska. The Hateful Eight as well um, he was also married to uh, Diane Ladd as well yes and Ladd was also quite close to the, the Tate and, and Polanski sort of yeah. family as well yeah. Yeah. what's interesting about this sorry to bring it back I feel like we've kind of we've talked a really long circle around it that's alright it's an enjoyable circle the the push and pull that I have with the movie right and we talked a lot about how great it is and how much I love it one of the things that makes me a little bit uncomfortable with it is there's parts of it that feel and again this is maybe me Tarantino as provocateur in the same way you know that the excessive violence is very much like you know I'm going to show this excessive violence was against the Manson family so I can yeah, get away yeah. with it but it's more the elements of the film has a lot of sympathy for Tate and a lot of sympathy for Dalton. Yes. And both deservedly so, because Dalton is insecure, he's arrogant, he's mean, he's vindictive. No. But, but it comes from a place where he is, but, but it but, does come out of a place where he's being yes. washed up. And and more than that, though, like Dalton is shown to be relatively good at what he does. He's a workman-like actor. Yeah. Like, he learns his lines. He sits at home, he records a tape, and he practices them. The wonderful bit in the trailer where he's having the big meltdown, and he's like, you had to have eight whiskey sours. You couldn't stop at three or four. Now people won't think I... Re- like you didn't rehearse. <laughs> yeah, <you> did rehearse. <laughs> um, but, like, there's something... It's official, buddy. But, I'm a has-been. Yeah. And you actually feel you, that. You do. And the sequence with the little girl as well on set, which we'll come back to. We'll talk oh, about yeah. that sequence as well. But that... Like, we talk about uh, characters having charm. Yeah. Like the the charm of 
of um, of his co-star. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, even um, like like I there's a joke on this podcast about how often or how rarely I cry during movies. My eyes moisten and I little teardrop form twice. First during that sequence where like Rick Dalton's talking about reading the Western novel. It's about feeling a, a little bit more more used. Useless, useless every day. Useless every day. Um, and he's sort of like he's breaking down crying and yeah. his little co-star has to come over and comfort, comfort him. him. But even even the little bit where and again it's, it's a jokey scene and I, I laugh at it as well. It's a bit where it's like Mr. That was the best acting I've ever seen. And like you can tell it's that... Incre- it's like a kind of... You could go validation. either way. No, but it, it's it's a funny sort of like Team America sort of like spoofing. Yeah. It yeah. could go, of, yeah. Of, of, of the, the sort inter- of the, the importance of acting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, it, but the moment where he kind of tears up and, and then goes... <laughs> and it, it's, it's in the trailer as well. Yeah. And that you could be... Like in the trailers played for laughs. Yeah. But in the movie, like you say, it could go either way. You could, you could laugh at him at that actorly ego, but at the same time, that's probably the most praise he's got for anything in a while yeah. because he's used to yes men bigging him up. He's had the cancellation of the TV show Bounty Law, and then suddenly you got somebody who you think ostensibly he has respect for because she's clearly so committed to art. His little uh, co-star, yeah, um, Trudy. Trudy, played by wonderful little actress, uh, Julia Butters. Yeah. She, she's she apparently had three scenes, only two of them made the cut. Apparently the rumour, the, the editors are saying that if the third scene had stayed in, she'd be looking at a Best Supporting Actor nomination. She, uh, uh, you notice I said actor, not actress. Because oh, well, actress are, is a useless word. As um, she would have said. Um, I, I, do you know what I'd bet? She's going to go into directing, that kid. <laughs> like, We'll we'll come back to the what I was talking about earlier. I feel like we're taking really circuitous, circuitous route there. Oh, but the, the I know, we're usually so structured. But the character of uh, Trudy, the character, yeah. um, she's fascinating because there's this, one of the criticisms that's been leveled at the movie, it's not something I agree with, in fact, it's something I very strongly disagree with, is that there's an element of Tarantino saying, get off my lawn, kids, with the movie. Particularly with, say, the use of, of the dirty hippies and that sort of stuff. And Goddamn hippies. Yeah, uh, which which is nuts, because that assumes that the film is on Rick's side in that. like, And that assumes if the it's film is so on Rick's... Out, it's, yeah. uh, Rick is an out of touch. Yeah, Rick is out of touch. Yeah. The only v- hippies it actually hates are the ones who attack, want to attack the Manson. Yeah. Uh, but attack but more than that, like... You if the film the beach if, 21 years ago. <laughs> but if... <laughs> If the film is um, if the film is on Rick's side, there you have to assume the film is on Rick's side and hating Italian movies, and you know it's a Tarantino movie. He there loves is them. no way you're meant to see Rick is out of touch. You're not meant to, and like Cliff, who is presented as much cooler and much hipper and much with it, is down with the counterculture. That moment where he sort of sees the Manson family crossing the road and gives a little eye contact as Mrs. Robinson starts playing on the car stereo. Well, cuckoo, cuckoo. Uh, but even the the great well, what's been described as arm porn, where he's sort of like his hand is out the kind of window of the car gesturing which direction he's going and stuff like that the flirting that happens with Pussycat but yeah like, and the acid tip cigarette that he buys as well he's down but, with them he's down he, with the kids it's the ambivalence of the movie which is difficult when people want it to be one thing yeah. or another is 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 that um, uh, Tarantino loves and hates hippies he, he, he wants to kind of um, uh, celebrate them and kind of like show how um how charming the how seductive um, the lifestyle can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 it's a pussy, isn't it? Pussy cat. Yeah, yeah pussy. We cat. love our pussy. Yeah, yeah, yeah we do. Yeah, we do. Uh, that's um, that's lines from the movie. People, don't be at us. Like the the 
she's so um, incredibly um, Margaret Qualley um, is the actor uh, by charming. the way yeah. she um, is yeah yeah you're, you're just so kind of like drawn in yeah. and there's a lot of um, sort of um, uh, 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 affection or attraction to, to, to between Cliff and her exactly yeah. yeah yeah but and um, but there is also the 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 um, the the, uh, revenge on the, on the, on the, but I mean, even beyond that, there's the character of Trudy, um, the, the, the little, little girl. girl who initially seems like she's being introduced as a parody of like of my modern audiences. Uh, mo- no, but like, yeah, of like hipster again, like this is 1969, but so not millennials, but millennials where she, she's like, she's talking about how she likes to remain in character and she wants to, you know, you respect that. And she thinks that actress Typical is a baby boomer. Act- yeah. <laughs> actress is actress is a useless term and how like there's a moment where he's like oh thank you boomer by the way oh what does he call her Uh, thank you pumpkin puss and it's like i don't care for names like pumpkin puss but But you're upset so i'll allow it but like the in that scene like as much as tarantino may be like spoofing that in a like a dad's angry at modern culture sort of way the sympathy of the scene is very much with her she is incredibly patient with rick yeah. She's incredibly sensitive to Rick's needs. She engages him in conversation. Like when when he asks about, he's ready to sit down and just sort of be there and be quiet by herself. She asks about the novel. She expresses an interest in it. And she's and she wants to hear more. She doesn't just accept, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's just a stupid thing. She's like, no, tell me about it. Engage with it. And when he starts crying, like she this girl who's him. eight years old. She comes over she, to comfort him. She has it's, to go over to this middle-aged It's man. disarmingly sweet. Yeah. And I... And, and like yeah, she's never out of control of the sequence at all because you juxtapose that with the moment later where she's like, I don't like names like Pumpkin Puss, but at the same time, even the tenderness of, but I can see you're upset. We don't have to talk about that now. Like there's a, it's like there's, it, it's really strange because he, she's he, the you, most together person in the movie. Yeah, probably. Uh, but it, it's true, she is. Um, but like you said, the sympathies they're quite evenly spread out there. Like we've been feeling Dalton's kind of isolation and you know that feeling of feeling more useless every, every day. day but at the same time he kind of gets where she's coming from precocious as she might be uh, in terms of having to of listening to him of taking of taking an ear and trying to empathize it's remarkable and both characters are great and both actors are marvelous I have to say, I, 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 I felt, I, I didn't feel, I didn't feel that much for, for, um, for Dalton's character, but I, oh. but I, but I really, uh, I really liked her, um, kind of compassion yeah. for him. I, 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 I was very kind of, that, that was my connection to to, uh, him. Uh, to him. Yeah. yeah. I, lo- I think it probably says a lot about the and- podcast that Andrew's like, yeah, Cliff Booth. That was the, that's the life I want. I don't want the big house. I want the little trailer. And Darren's like, the bit I cried at, that was the Rick Dalton stuff. Well, you're, you're more the Cliff Booth in some ways. As in, like, like the understatement at the end where he says, hey, Cliff, you're a great friend. He's like, oh, thank you. It's I like, do my best. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you just saved my life and, and the life of my wife. Um, um, yeah, they, they, that, that's what like whenever I say, uh, "Oh, thanks, Aaron, you're a great friend." It's a, um, it's a serious understatement. We were just talking there about uh, the young actress uh, Julia Butters playing Trudy. How yeah. wonderful she's been in general, though. The, the cast, yeah, they're a big part of why this works. Um, we talked earlier about DiCaprio about how fine casting he is, and he brings a lot of his own issues and baggage, perhaps, to the role. So, okay, fair enough. Pitt's on fire here. And I think 
Pitt, because what a big story is, I don't think we necessarily appreciate how good an actor yeah. he actually is. Um, a, a lot of it is his charisma, which yeah. which which is very aside which he from has his that acting. Well, yeah, there's you a lot of charisma at work maybe. here. You could, yeah. but what he does here is he brings he brings a charisma, sure, which you need. But he does bring a certain amount of menace, which he has to have, not least yeah. to try to to sell that ambiguity, to sell the ambiguity. Believe him, yeah, yeah. Uh, and just to make you distrust him just a little bit, just enough. Uh, he also brings the scenes that got that really took it up to another level for a bit for me in this movie was actually at the end where he's beating the crap out of the Mansons while stoned off his ass you could play that several ways you could play it a bit dumb you could play it completely bloodlusting here he's just like I'm just going, just going to it. beat the crap out of you now it's just going and it's it. hilarious like, at the end right after everything has gone down he's been wheeled out of the house he's got a ni- he's still got a knife in his hip he's just killed three people quite nastily and he's been wheeled out and his reaction is and away we go um, the whole audience just bursts out laughing and I think that, that that's brings back the charisma Worth, and again I, I'm wary of turning this into a Darren movie theory truth column or whatever a truth section not like any other episode Darren movie truth column but uh, this, you make I, it sound not, like conspiracy theory I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a big fan of like well, what really happened to the climax of the film but I, I found myself. You had a platform. Yeah, to use like a like a social media or something. But one of the things I find interesting about the climax of the film, the acid tip cigarette that he takes before stuff really starts going down. And again, it's been suggested that like the climax of the movie is all in Cliff's head to a certain extent. I mean, it's a fairy tale; it doesn't really matter. But one of the things I noticed watching it again, mm. and I absolutely love this, is that right, the movie makes a point throughout its runtime, up on, in the first two acts. Very few people really knowing who Rick Dalton is. Like, he goes to Span Ranch and he visits George Span. And, like, again, this is one of the things about the movie's radical empathy. Because there's a moment where Span sits up and it's like, you've touched me. You know, you came out to visit me to check up on me. You know, there's a sense of, like, is Span being sarcastic or whatever. But there's a sense of, like, Cliff being... It might be real. Yeah, Even though he's he's being talked to somebody who worked there and he doesn't even remember. Yeah. Like, he talks about, I'm Rick Dalton's stunt double. Who? The Dalton brothers? Um, who Made family law. Yeah. Who? Yeah. But like, so you have this like element of compassion there and Cliff's sympathy for George, which ties into the movie's whole recurring motif of like compassion sympathy and empathy Dalton. and stuff like that. <laughs> 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 um, you're Pierce Brosnan? Um, but it, it, it has, so like you have that sequence, but like Spawn, who's set housed bounty law mm-hmm. doesn't remember who rick dalton is That's and by the way by the way i absolutely love the crazy conspiracy theory that right wait bear with me on this right so tyler Durden. um tyler Durden is not a real person but no it's more like so bounty law right was filming on spawn ranch mm. you find out early in the movie that bounty law was cancelled because of the actions of Rick. Because Rick wanted, and I quote, a rinky-dink movie career. And that's why Screen Gems will never forgive him, and that's why he'll never get another pilot and stuff like that. Right. And that's part of the reason he's washed up, right? So, here's a question for you. If Rick had been happy with his station life, hadn't been insecure, hadn't got bounty law cancelled, would they still be shooting at Span Ranch? If they were still shooting at Span Inaccessible Ranch, Inaccessible the, the Manson family. Would the Manson family ever have moved in there? And if the Manson family had never moved in there, would the Manson murders ever have happened? And is Rick single-handedly responsible for the Charles Manson murders? Except, That's my pet theory. Yeah, but the thing is, is, but remember, in this point. movie, the murders don't happen. Yeah, I know. And they happen in reality. Yeah. 
where Rick Dalton <laughs> doesn't, doesn't exist. Um, but I, in, in, I hate in, to undercut in, your theory there, Darren. In, yeah, in, but this in, is all about the redemption in, of Rick Dalton. So this who is, doesn't this, exist. This, this is one prime reality is the one where Sharon <laughs> Tate is murdered. Yes. Alternate reality in Once Upon a Time she is, is, is T one is, is where she lives. Um, and the the um, and and, and w- w- where the Manson family also um, exists, exist, but are murdered. Yeah. Um, and then there's T uh, two, which is which is where they all get jobs in in in, in Wall Street. Yeah, possibly as a result, uh, they sell out like all the other baby yeah, boomers. Yeah. Um, but but more to the point, what I'm saying is so. You have it established early on that people don't really know who Rick Dalton is. I mean, even when he's walking on set, you know, he's, you know, people are given directions. The, the little girl doesn't recognize him, for example, stuff like that. Now, obviously, people who work in the industry do. He's and dead the yeah. whole time. <laughs> but no, no, no. Wait, wait, wait for it, though. What happens at the climax of the movie, once, once Cliff takes a puff of that LSD cigarette, yeah. everyone in the movie recognizes Rick Dalton. Dalton, the Manson family kids. It turns out Isn't are the guy se- from Bonnie Law. Yeah, are like, that was my favorite lunchbox. And they're like, yeah, I remember it used to be on TV and all this sort of stuff. You mean that it was Jake Cal? It does uh, take them a while though. It, it does, does take. Under not well, to be yeah. fair, yeah, <laughs> to be fair though, they're all teed up people, ready to murder, so they might be a bit. People kind of. Um, uh, often people with Alzheimer's like they'll remember people from eight years yeah. ago they just won't remember immediately yeah. but I mean even after that you have like when he goes down he meets Jay Sebring at the gate Jay's like Jay Cal I used to, I used to tell Sharon that if she ever wanted to put a bounty out on Rick she only had to go next door like, <laughs> but, not, but not only that like the level of specificity of the details of it where he's like you know uh, turns out I had a had a flamethrower in my shed like, oh you mean for the fault tree and fist of McCluskey everyone and remembers that's it like sudden. Jay Sebring is like the world's biggest Rick Dalton fan but not only that like when the that's his redemption yeah, yeah. When, when the buzzer goes and Sharon's like oh I'm here with your neighbor it's like you're here with Rick Dalton um, I wanted Rick Dalton to be delighted when he discovers that these people who've come to to murder him know his movies, <laughs> yeah. know know his TV shows. Yeah. He's like, oh gosh, that really, you really touched me. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I so kind I of crying again. I kind of like. I'm not a big fan of, of theories that like the end of the movie didn't happen or something like that, but I, I love the idea that like this is Cliff's like LSD cigarette fuel fantasy. Everyone where everybody and I get to be the hero. Yeah, that's it. Like this is a better world where not only does the you know the Manson family murders not happen, not only am I redeemed, but also everybody knows who Rick is, because Rick is awesome. Um, which is kinda great. I really like that. Yeah, I just said it's gag. Everybody comes to Rick's. Everybody loves Rick. It's a slightly different... It's a Casablanca reference. Uh, but, um... Anyway, sorry. We've been really, really sidetracked, but to get to the part of the movie that I'm uneasy about. Oh, finally. So, finally. Oh, hold on. Wait a second. Is it, we're getting to the meat and veg now. <laughs> <laughs> how, 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 the, how long are we in? <laughs> oh, good heavens. Okay. Very, very quickly. Right? <laughs> wow, well, I've just actually checked the timer. I'm very shocked. About everything important. <laughs> about the we've movie. We've danced about uh, <laughs> up until now. I have a certain amount of things to talk about that I've written down. You haven't even written anything down. We've no notes. Um, but no, I'm, I'm talking from Darren's point of view. <laughs> he doesn't have it either. But um, come on, Darren. Actually, come on, come on. Okay, anyway, but anyway, my point, my question is this, right? So the movie very is very sympathetic towards Rick Bastard, and Sharon, Bastard. right? Oh. Okay, right. And I mean, again, you have this idea of like the fantasy of it's, and one of the things that really touched me, really, truly, about this movie is the fact that. Um, it's about people just doing work. Mm. And the idea, it's like Trudy says, the, the goal of the actor is 100% efficiency. And there's something very sweet about a movie where people get to be useful one more time. And like, it's great that these two guys find themselves in a situation where their skills 
are useful both Cliff's skill as a stuntman for really messing people up and potentially for murdering women um, is also a skill that seems to come in handy but even things like um, Rick's use of flamethrower which you, you see early on that wonderful you, shot of the, the big anybody on a fried sauerkraut and holy crap shout out to the uh, stunt actors that's like eight guys burned up right there pretty but impressive I also love the sequence where he's like well, well, well that's too hot is there anything you can do about the heat it's a flamethrower Rick <laughs> um, but like so the movie has sympathy for Rick and Sharon who are very sympathetic characters even that you have Sharon watching her movie and seeing the work that she put into that and seeing it paid off on screen and watching people laugh at it and You're getting enjoying a, it yeah, yeah and getting a sense and, of, and one of the so, there's such innocence uh, yeah, yeah this is a very simplistic thing but it works well I think it just goes back to the idea of having beautiful people being beautiful but there's that scene where uh, Sharon Tate is sitting in the theatre and she's listening to the people uh, reacting to her cluts on screen and just enjoy, lapping it up and enjoying it laughing and just this wide, huge, mile-wide smile from Robbie yeah. as, as she realises, and loving it. Notable that she's wearing glasses. And the glasses to accentuate her eyes. She's wearing glasses, but they're not sunglasses, like the sunglasses that Bruce Lee wears and that Rick wears and that Cliff yeah. wears. So not only she's, is, is her view unobscured, she's accentuating the yeah. experience by wearing the glasses. Yeah. Um, so the movie Sympathy Fords, those characters, is really heartwarming compassion. Yeah. I'm a little bit uneasy at like the way it kind of almost seems to sneak in little sympathy and compassion otherwise in ways that would make you uncomfortable. So like, for example, the most obvious one is Polanski, right? Where uh, He's largely a non-player. That's it, exactly. He's, and he's, uh, yeah, I know. The, like The thing about it is this all happened bef- way before yes. Polanski's own personal life became so sordid and he was tried and convicted and fled. Yeah. Um, and I mean notable even in the film itself right so you have a sequence one of the things that Sharon does in that sequence is to buy a copy of, of Tess the, Dur- the Durbervilles for, for him for his birthday now apparently he got it while they were in London together so that that's an invention of Tarantino's but it's notable that Tess of the Durbervilles was one of the first movies that Polanski made afterwards yes, and Tess. it was read by many people as a commentary and the tagline of the movie if I remember correctly was <laughs> She was born into a world where they called it an act of seduction, not an act of violence. Um, which is something that is very loaded in terms of Polanski's work. Extremely. But what Once Upon a Time in Hollywood does with the character of Sharon Tate is it kind of neutralizes that a little bit. Or you have even the sequence with Steve McQueen in the Playboy Mansion where he's like, Sharon definitely has a type. Young, Short, short yeah. young, talented guys who look like they're 12 years old. Yeah, which is, seems like a really awkward line in the context of like... But, it, I think, but again, yeah. I think that's designed to make you think yeah. on that. Yeah. If you're forced to think on it, then... Oh, no, I know. Yeah, I know. It, that's not, exactly not, the yeah. point. And, I mean, again, the way I look at it is that when it happened, this was all before his own personal life yeah. went to absolute crap. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I, and again, this is why I feel it's a lament for a time that seemed on the surface at least that things were just a bit more bright and sunny which LA is and Hollywood is always portrayed to be except when it's not and here you have a clear case of it where Tarantino is I suppose at the end effectively kind of retconning it it's it's more innocent than the 60s probably actually were, were yeah. yeah yeah like I don't imagine well I mean anyone I, in in the I don't imagine Cliff's character in the actual 60s asking yeah. her if she has ID I, yeah. I think basically based what on t- Hell Needham by the way who was famously uh, stuntman uh, Burt Reynolds stuntman yeah um, he directed although, Cannibal although Run I think at, like the, at, the, at the time that definitely was a 
thing like um Orson Welles talks about um talks about how um Hearst was was trying to um oh uh, uh, honey uh, trap him you mentioned yeah yes. yeah arrange yeah. it so that a, a minor would kind of show yeah. up at his hotel, hotel room which I think basically the approach with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Tarantino is presenting these events and he's basically saying any baggage that comes with these you're bringing it. I mean, there is that, but there's also a sense of Tarantino inviting that, I think, to a certain extent. Like, the well, casting I mean, of I Neil did... Hirsch as Jay Sebring. I example, actually didn't is... know about this oh, okay. until you told me. I didn't realize that Neil Hirsch would be kind of a bit blacklisted because he got in a punch-up with a Paramount He executive. assaulted, a, he strangled a, a Paramount executive to the point where she almost passed out at a Sundance party, um, which has apparently affected his career, as you might imagine it would. Yeah. So, the, like, again, things like that sort I've of seen. And again, like... I think the ambiguity is good. I'm not at all trying to shut it down or anything like that. I just it's something. But that, Darren, like, Tarantino it's making an actor who would uh, who would choke. Thank uh, you. And, <laughs> and, and also, he fit yeah. the part. Yeah, I have to say, uh, the guy who plays uh, Polanski is a Polish actor. Uh, Dead spit of him again. Uh, mm. There's a lot of that. Uh, enough acting to make you go the double take. Also, in terms of the casting. Um, you know what we were saying earlier about maybe there's an element of Tarantino being like, oh, those damn kids. Well, He's being got a bit a of a provocateur. Well, maybe. But there is also an element perhaps of him being like, oh, those damn kids. Considering that a lot of the cast are the kids of previous collaborators. So we said my The Manson Hawks, family. Yeah, particularly in the Manson family. Uh, Rumor Willis, daughter of Bruce, has a small role. Yeah. Um, Harley Quinn Smith is in there as a member of the family, for example. Um, Margaret Qualley, who plays Pussycat. Andy is, McDowell's Andy daughter. McDowell's daughter. Um, oh, wow. Maya Hawke is in there. I mean, I kind of love the casting of, um, what's her name is, Gypsy. Um, uh, Lena Dunham. Lena Dunham. You know, the voice of her generation, uh, in inverted commas. Part of me wonders, though, if like, the original casting for Tex was going to be Adam Driver just to sort of hammer that home. <laughs> he does look like him. Because he does look a bit he like does, him. Yeah. But I mean, and again, there's a sense of Tarantino being a bit cheeky there where it's like, look at the kids these days where they're playing, look at the kids in those days. And that's sort of like the second generation of movies. But it's stars. like, you know, history repeating itself. You yeah. know, people probably looked at the man's mind and got, oh, those kids before they did something really dangerous. And now we're looking at people going, oh, probably looking at an entire generation going, oh, those kids, but the thing again the future is unwritten like, we don't know I don't think I don't think this veganism is a phase and and they're, they're, they've also like been found guilty of mass murder <laughs> but I mean it's, it's worth noting like there's when, a when we when we discover that uh, there's yeah. no in terms of like metafictional elements there's a wonderful quote from Tarantino and Esquire where he's talking about like um you know how the manly men of 1969 presumably like Brad Pitt sort of shirtless on the roof replacing antennae you know they're being replaced. The new leading men are the exact opposite of this. They're skinny, shaggy-haired guys. There's a pansexuality about them. And it's the hippie sons of famous people. So it's Peter Fonda. It's Michael Douglas. Arlo Guthrie. Uh, Michael Sarazen. So I kind of like the cast yeah, of the Manson a, family feels like Tarantino riffing on that idea. It's the same thing again. And again, even the styles and the physicality, it's all come around again. Yeah. You know, like you say, you're talking about these... this thin light pansexuality I'm sorry uh, hello 1969 same summer as Space Oddity when we yeah, got the ultimate Bowie, yeah. the ultimate personification of that in Bowie yeah it's I'm it, this is like this is like a sentiment I had when we discussed Three Colors Red we're never we're never going to be the end children of history people oh, yeah. just it, keeps it, coming it's, around it's and around constant constant circle um, in terms of that just very quickly before we go the um, oh are we going I'm sorry okay. I thought we had so many more points <laughs> we actually do have so many more they points keep going okay. god damn it the the casting of uh, Burt Reynolds. This is fascinating. This he is... was supposed to play... George Spahn. 
And yes. in fact, actually, what's interesting is that, according to Tarantino, the last thing that happened before, and this is a rather morbid Hollywood story, but I like that Once Upon a Time has its own morbid Hollywood mythology in there. The last thing that Burt Reynolds did before he had a heart attack was rehearsing his lines as Spawn with an assistant. Oh. Apparently Tarantino heard it from three different people, that like he was, rep- he was recording the lines and he went into the bathroom and he didn't come out. Um, but what's interesting, though, is that Reynolds is a key figure in the film in other ways. He was going to be played by James Marsden. Which James Morrison was cast as a young Burt Reynolds. And by the way, James Morrison being cast as a young Burt Reynolds and then cut out of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the most James Morrison thing that I think has ever happened. <laughs> that um, guy just can't get a break, can he? Yeah. But it's it, and I suspect the part of the reason why it was cut was because Reynolds wasn't available to play Spawn, so there was no point in having that there because it would be a joke that wouldn't connect. But it's notable that um one of the inspirations for Cliff is Hal Needham, who was Burt Reynolds' stunt double. And a director in his own right. And a director in his own right. And Reynolds would sort of bring him on board. And it was very much the same sort of thing. You can throw him downstairs. You can throw him off a building and hit him with a Lincoln, for example. Um, And Reynolds later said of Needham that Needham would have been the perfect... If Needham had been a woman, they would have had the perfect marriage. Hmm. We were two guys that thought the other one was great and at the same time were happy just to have a mirror to each other. Which which is is literally the relationship that exists between Cliff and Rick. More than a brother, a little less than a wife. And even the opening credits which juxtapose Leonardo DiCaprio's name over Brad Pitt. And vice versa. And vice versa as well. So you have the sense of the two of them being interchangeable which I I really, really like. Yeah, that's um, pointed but I like it a lot. Um, So yeah, uh, in terms of just random other stuff is there anything else anybody wants to talk about? Ooh. I said we had so much to talk about and now you've kind of got me stumped. No, we could go on forever. Oh, I'm we, sure we could. We could. Once we will not. Uh, <laughs> just in terms of other stuff that's vaguely uh, interesting, the st- the look at the use of LA here mm. in particular. Uh, and in particular, a lot of the stuff that's used is from Tarantino's own personal collection of memorabilia. Mm. Some of it is wholly invented as well. But here's one for you. Go on. We have seen... The sequence, the place where the Manson family are introduced singing All Is One Together, which is a song Charlie Manson wrote, you know, during that ominous sort of horror movie introduction where they're seen out of focus, sort of skipping down the street, and then they're diving through the trash looking for food, which is something they they call the dumpster diving. But the place where they're dumpster diving is actually quite a famous Los Angeles landmark. Andrew and I will remember it from last year. When we watched A Star Is Born. Is this it's the, the, is this the uh, where they've got the massive uh, drawing of James Dean? Yes. And, and, the, and the picture on the foot. Which again is something that recurs throughout. I love that Tarantino's foot fetish appears throughout the film. Right down yeah, to like... A, a lot of people have pointed that out. And i got to say, all these people commenting it on Letterboxd D and other places. Oh, you all like to kink shame, don't you? Uh, <laughs> but I, I love that the first foot you see on, on film, on screen. Similar to the first face you see on screen um, in terms of the actual movie itself. Is actually just an illustration of it. It's a giant mural and it's like the camera pans and it focuses on the foot mm. of that like mural, which is great. So Tarantino, you know, he likes those two dimensional feet as well. But even <laughs> the, the sequence where Rick keeps a picture of his own face from a poster yeah. uh, on his parking garage. It's the first thing you see when they're pulling out of the it's house. It's quite a grotesque version. It of is. Actually. Well, I mean, it, it's, I think that's quite appropriate given how Rick sees himself. Yeah. But that supermarket is the same one from A Star Is Born. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's also the same one that was known as the Britney Spears um, supermarket because it was used in Crossroads as well, which I thought was quite nice. Uh, <laughs> the supermarket, not, the, the not supermarket, Crossroads not. itself. But it's also notable that things like Tarantino's memory modeling of L.A. was based on his memory of it as a child rather than how it really was. He described how he wanted his production designers to build a version of L.A. that would look as it looked out the window of a car. Because he remembers driving around it because he would have been six or seven yeah. in 1969. And he's talked about how stuff like, say, the Miracle Mile in Los Angeles was actually designed 
for optimum viewing through a car windshield, which I find absolutely fascinating. It was A.W. Ross designed it so that basically all the shops on the street had access from the car parks. So there was no need for pedestrians to walk down the actual walkway of it. Mm. All the signs were big and in neon letters so they could be seen clearly through glass. And so like when they designed this film, they would actually shoot one side of the street at a time. So they actually designed the whole street. They spent 10 hours building stuff. And even like that wonderful sequence where it's the night of August 8th and you have just all these shots of the neon coming on with the hum and stuff like that. Yeah. The recreation of LA is absolutely amazing. It's, it really is. Uh, like you say, it was produced beautifully. Another shout out, uh, another fantastic job shooting on film by uh, legendary DOP Robert Richardson. Is there something in the Tarantino's acknowledgement that he sees this as his version of Roma? Yes. Uh, dealing with memories, uh, uh Childhood memories in particular. Like, Tarantino didn't... Did he grow up in... No, he was born in Tennessee. Did he, he didn't grow up in L.A., did he? He seems to have remembered... He talks about remembering seeing L.A. through the window of a car. Okay. It's notable, though, that, like, a lot of the advertisements on the radio when they're listening to... It was a KWJ? KHJ! Um, when they're listening to that, there's a lot of advertisements for TV... For movies playing on television. Huh. And those advertisements are all for movies that Tarantino remembers seeing for the first time on television. The Illustrated Man... Ray Bradbury's masterpiece of the supernatural. Um, but also things like The um, Possessed, which is an Italian, or an adaptation of an Italian movie, which you remember seeing on television. Well, they would have to advertise those big screens because that was often the only way you'd get to see movies is when they yeah. came on TV. Yeah. Ah, uh, uh, those were the days. I find that kind of really, really fascinating in terms of, of that sort of stuff. But anyway, is there anything else we want to talk about? Anything we is have there to <laughs> <laughs> asking us if there's anything else we want to talk about. How many more? Come on, we've got about ten to minutes about? to match the length of the movie itself. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Sorry, that's McConaughey and not me. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's it's gone. It's okay. It's all right. I apologize to any listeners who are who are, who are digging like, that. Who want more? Yeah, yeah. We haven't talked about the placement of the ellipsis in the title yet. Oh yeah, <laughs> Andrew, this is for you especially. Uh, but no, the, the is it once upon a time in Hollywood or once upon a time in Hollywood? Apparently, the studio's official position is that it's once upon a time dot 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 in Hollywood, okay. and that's the way that it appears at the end of the movie. The issue is that all the posters of memorabilia have once upon a time in dot 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 Hollywood, and the reason that is is because they want to incorporate the Hollywood sign. By the way, the poster Tarantino appears on the poster for this movie. What? Yeah, if you take out the poster, it's directly above the, I think it's time, but you can see him directing the camera, which is really great. It's like, I'm going to be on my own poster as well. You can see him kind of doing the shot and directing the shot kind of, there's a little camera on a little sort of hoist, and he's sort of directing it as well. It's really, really cool. And I recommend you sort of seek that out as well. Um, But yeah, so that's really bad. Oh, the Lancer stuff. I really, really like the Lancer stuff. There he is. Yeah. Got him. Yeah. I just pulled it up on my phone, folks. He's actually there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he he needs to he needs to stop that. <laughs> but I mean, like, to be honest, like it was no, either that or put it up in, in his the, movie in, yeah. in 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 the poster. Mm. But I mean, like, would you rather have him in no, the movie itself? No. He's not an actor. <laughs> he wanted to be an actor. He actually but originally he wanted. <laughs> like he he's not. Okay, so let me tell you, like a virgin's about. Anyway, so I think that about wraps it up then in terms of talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, but if you'd like to recommend something for this, why are you going to I just realised I never mentioned... <laughs> <laughs> the, 
DiCaprio throwing that delicious looking chicken on the ground. Yeah. Oh, with the, yeah, when he's yeah. eating and the and, tamales and, and get the, the and, food and waste. And the combination of inappropriate smoking and food waste with the cigarette going in Indian, the bolognese. Yeah. Yeah. And also even the, the inappropriate smoking at the end with the Jake Cattle sort of like the stinger, which I've really, really liked. The, um, the one where he's doing the product placement. Oh, yeah. Now, Jake had to roll his own. <laughs> and, of course, red apple. Yeah. Of course, Tarantino, Tarantino brand. It's like that. But it's like, to ensure the best flavor, strongest taste, and no throat burn. And then you see him take the cigarettes, like, that's a strong taste. Nice flavor. No throat burn. Um, Andrew <laughs> is vaping viciously right yeah, now. Yeah, unfortunately, we were in a cinema, so Andrew couldn't vape along with the movie. Yeah, that was annoying. <laughs> sort of ruined your immersion so to speak of the of the experience kids don't vape <laughs> seriously don't, don't. Smoke either. <laughs> yeah but but don't vape either so yeah i think that about wraps it up then but if you have something you'd like to recommend for listeners to try something that might be of interest to them whether related to the movie or just something you're enjoying personally phil Ooh. um actually i'm gonna give a shout out to this just because i've started watching it and i seem to be having a very mixed reaction to other people compared to some uh tv show uh succession Yes, it's just back for a second season. Yes, indeed. Well, I've just started watching the first and I'm really not sure what to make of it. Yes, I get they're all meant to be bastards, but seriously, these are bastards. It's great. It's, uh, I, I'm going to give it some more time. I feel like I can't quite decide on a, a consistent register. I keep getting scenes where it wants to be a bit more serious and then there's other scenes where it feels more like I'm watching the thick of it. Which shouldn't be a bad thing, except, again, it's kind of clashing with those scenes. I'm really not sure what it wants to be. It's, it's an hour-long prestige drama that's shot like a BBC sitcom, which yeah, is yes. a great juxtaposition. Well, I that's really... the thing. I'm not sure if it's so great. It kind of okay. leaves me a bit off as to where I'm meant to be with it. Well, I'm going to keep with it. I'm sure other people will love it. And I've heard the second season is even better than the first. So, Well, it's only aired one episode. It's a, you know, it's a bit early to say. Well, I don't know. The initial review has been really, pretty good. Right. So I'm, I'm open to give it a chance. But that's me. Uh, speaking of bastards, um, <laughs> what a segue! The 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 music of Charles Manson. Some some of it's not that bad, um, particularly that Beach no Boy wonder, single. No um, wonder he was so peeved. Well, yeah, like cease to exist and um, those sorts of yeah. Like uh, uh, he's not going. Just just remember, he's not going to profit from this. <laughs> those some set of Sam laws are pretty pretty great. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, they're 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 they they he's been he's been covered by um uh, by Guns N' Roses as, uh, as as well. Um, so yeah, yeah, it could have been very different for Charles Manson and for Hollywood. Yeah, um, I would recommend a couple that's of the the the, the third T um, three. <laughs> um, that's the third timeline where Charles Manson is bigger than the Beatles. Um, but yeah, I would I'd recommend a couple of things very quickly. Um, I'd recommend the um. The You Must Remember This Podcast, because I actually broke our rule for this podcast. I listened to a podcast. I sort of stepped all over Andrew's role as designated podcast guy. Um, I don't have a role now. <laughs> I'm more free flow. I'm trying to breakfast roll as he sometimes give me. <laughs> I just turn up here. Well, I cycle for an hour and a half. Do you... That's good exercise. I do no preparation. <laughs> do you carry my fetch. load? Yeah, I carry your. <laughs> that's, about right. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I I kind of stepped uh, into Andrew's territory there, and I sort of I, I listened to Karina Longworth's fantastic 
Uh, you must remember this season, you must remember Manson, which is actually available to its own podcast. It's a couple of, it's I think about 10 episodes long or 11 episodes long. And it goes through the way in which Manson was shaped by Hollywood and the way Manson shaped Hollywood itself. It's a fascinating listen. And I, uh, as a happy coincidence, since you mentioned it, uh, the second season of Mindhunters is now yes. available on Netflix. And starring the same Charles Manson. So it's all yes, part of the Manson shared universe. I might also There's an intellectual property I do not want to hear about, but there you are. Open source, Christopher Layden has... Or Christopher Lydon has has a um, an episode now ish um, called uh, Tarantino's Ninth, where they're 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 talking about the kind of um, Manson and um, the uh, late sixties and um, this movie and and about Tarantino's kind of um, some of the some of the things we've discussed, but it's interesting and and just check out open source in general. I. Um, I quite like um, I quite like open source. I quite like every now and then I'll steal the thing that he says of um, catch us next time, <laughs> catch us every time. Um, and also, <laughs> and also, I'd recommend Tom O'Neill's uh, book Chaos uh, about the Manson family murders. It's not actually a narrative, so to speak. It's more just around the idea of the Manson family murders uh, and sixties Hollywood in particular, and something that doesn't make sense. It's all the pieces that don't fit. And it's kind of a very 2019 book because he doesn't necessarily tie them together in a conspiracy theory in the way that Darren does. It's just like, here's a bunch of interesting stuff that's tangentially related. And it seems strange that all this stuff happened to overlap at the same time, but I can't prove any of it. So Draw here's, your own conclusion. That's it exactly, which is absolutely fascinating. And I think very much in keeping with the spirit of this particular movie Indeed. as well. Um, so yeah, that'll be about it. We'll be back next week when Ethan and Jer will be joining us to discuss Life is Beautiful as part of our 1999 season. Uh, let's hope we haven't used up all of our English. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.